Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 85 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Game. The other voice you will soon hear is Matt Feuerstein. And Matt, I was thinking the other day, I really need to cut with like a good set intro, like for way of introducing us, because I noticed that either I just am a loss for words or i do an intro and then i realize like weeks later or days later it's just actually i'm just subconsciously aping intros from other podcasts i listen to i mean i have a set outro be based on a me embarrassing myself by starting a uh, sentence and not knowing how to finish it and now you have gotten me to make that our outro i need a set intro for introducing us you know what? Maybe I just repeat what I just did for the last 45 seconds word for word every time. I think that would work out well. Well, you know, uh, you can't go wrong with what's up, hot dog. So, <laughs> See, that, Matt, that, that is already taken. No. No, it's not. It used to be. <laughs> it's not anymore. Oh, um, the hot dog has been released. Excellent. Right. Yeah, um, it's ours now. What's up, hot dog? How's everybody doing? <laughs> Man, hot dogs. Matt, you're a vegetarian. Do you like tofu hot dogs? Uh, tofu hot dogs would not be the right way of describing it, I don't think, but like veggie dogs, I've had good ones, yes, um, not something I eat on a regular basis, but, uh, yeah, I, I like a good, I like a good vegetarian imitation hot dog from time to time, um, beyond sausages, not quite hot dogs, but those can be very good, I'm a fan, mm. you ever have one? Uh, no, actually, I've always wanted to try, but I, honestly, since the COVID, I've really been eating at home a lot more, but, um, that reminds me of a weird anecdote. I am not vegetarian, but uh, I actually really did like tofu hot dogs a couple times I had them. I should have incorporated them into my diet even though I, I keep eating meat. But what I tried them was – when I, I, mean, I mean, listen. If you're a meat eater, I just – I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt. You, I don't think like it's uh, like a nutritional requirement for you to incorporate imitation meat into your diet. More vegetables, sure. But <laughs> – Well, not, not – The imitation not, meat is like a health food. <laughs> Not to spend too much time on a wrestling podcast about this, but I do think there's something good about the idea of even if you're not going to go vegetarian, if you're not going to be a person with a good soul like you, there is still something to be gained even ethically and just for the world by reducing your consumption if you're not outright eliminating it. But That's true. And anyway, env- environmentally just, and all that stuff, I do not have a yeah. good soul, just for the record. Terrible, terrible soul. No matter what I eat, <laughs> my soul is Matt, monstrous. You have never – been less convincing that in the last sentence but i will say when i really tried tofu hot dogs and like they remind me and i'll just say an embarrassing anecdote so uh remember mad cow disease when that was a thing probably for the first time in like the 90s and everyone got scared about that i was i, I forget if i if it happened when i was a teenager or a very young adult but i uh i i briefly got very scared that i was going to get mad cow so for two weeks I uh, decided to be vegetarian. That is when I discovered I, – I did the bad vegetarian thing where you just try to eat meatless replacements of the regular food you enjoy rather than just trying to eat new recipes from the ground up that are built to use vegetables to a good a good use. But anyway, one of the things I tried – There's no wrong way to be a vegetarian. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you're right. Um I'm overcompensating because I know I'm speaking to one and I, I want to impress you, Matt. But uh, I enjoyed the tofu hot dogs, but I I also tried uh, chickpea chicken nuggets. And I remember I made this big production. Out, like, I'm going to be vegetarian. I told my family. I was like, this is really – you." and they were like, you won't last. You'll, you'll see. And I was obviously mad. And so 
I'm getting these like one night after everyone had gone to sleep. And I realized these are some of the most disgusting things ever. Um, I throw them in the garbage and I realize, oh, my family will see them tomorrow in, in, in the garbage and uh, they'll make fun of me. And now, now this is something I can only rec- describe as like young Trevor game logic. I could have just taken out the garbage myself. <laughs> Instead, this is what I did. I, I, to this day, I don't know why I did this. I took the chickpea chicken nuggets out of the garbage. I put them in a separate plastic bag. I walked five blocks down to uh, the edge of a hill I lived on. And I threw a bag of vegetarian chicken nuggets over the hill, like 60 feet into a neighbor's yard. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of my vegetarian run. Huh. It's like you were trying to get rid of a, a mouse or something, but that you tra- <laughs> but like even then you still shouldn't like chuck a mouse in a bag. You should just like release it. But um <laughs> but um I will um I will just reassure you that um imitation meat products have improved in the past 25 years. So I bet if you had some chickpea imitation nuggets now, I bet you'd enjoy them. That's just delicious chickpea fritters. Hmm. Chickpeas are good. Just yeah, you ever have, I you mean, everyone likes falafel, right? Hummus, exactly, you know? definitely. Anyway, but um, something that is almost as good as falafel is the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. There are a ton of shows, including us. Even if you don't like, if you just if if us talking, if me telling a weird long anecdote about trying to go vegetarian has turned you off of what you thought was going to be the wrestling podcast about Ring of Honor that you like. There are so many other shows on the network you can find from the past and the present. And if you want to listen to just us, if, if this if this conversation has made you more interested in the show, I mean, we have a feed that is just us. Just search for Through the Years. And finally, YouTube, where we get a couple nice comments every episode that I really appreciate. I, I We love our tubies. We even have the show up on YouTube. So, Matt, normally we talk right. about – oh, sorry. No, I was, I was going to say something? something. I was going to say something really stupid. So go on. <laughs> oh, please say, please say. Matt. Oh, I'm begging you. Oh, that was coming up with a new name for our. You said you called the YouTube listeners our tubies, and I, I'm going to call them our deep vein throm YouTubes. <laughs> <laughs> See, really stupid, really stupid. I, I, Matt, you know what? Me insisting that you tell me that it paid off for me. <laughs> um, um, you're going to be the so, one person that enjoyed it, so I'm glad. <laughs> hey, this show is for nothing else but each other. But um, normally we like to cover the stories after between the last Ring of Honor show and this one. This time there is only one story that does not pertain to the show we're actually going to be revealing today. But I think it's a pretty interesting one. And again, another one of those ones I either never read or just forgot about. So this is from the Pro Wrestling Observer. Dave Meltzer writes, Jersey All Pro Wrestling was close to a deal for a show this month, so the the month that this Ring of Honor show happened, November 2005, that would have been a Pro Wrestling NOAA U.S. joint show with Mitsuharu Masawa, Yoshinari Ogawa, Takeshi Rikio, uh, Naomichi Marifuji, Kenta... Michael Modest, Donovan Morgan, and Bison Smith as a package deal. Jersey All Pro Wrestling at first agreed, but then backed out after feeling that Kento Kobashi didn't draw big in Philadelphia for Ring of Honor. This is actually what opened the door to Ring of Honor for Kenta and Marifuji after the deal fell through. So 
I don't know if that what that last part quite means. I don't know if that's in other words saying that because yes, in December, obviously Kenta and Marafuji make their debut for Ring of Honor at a final battle, but I, I don't know why them running losing a US different US show in, in November would preclude them from doing one in December, except for the fact that maybe for some reason maybe Noah just wanted to have some more of the wrestlers wrestle in the US one more time in two thousand five, and so it was like, well, if this Jersey all pro thing is falling through, I, I guess we can go back to ring of honor, but it seems crazy that like that, that that's, I mean, that's a lo- that's Mitsuharu Masawa in the U S way before ring of honor booked him. That, that, plus Marafuji plus Kenta. Like that's, that's pretty crazy that that got sc- proposed and then scuttled because of the Kobashi Joe match, which, you know, we talked about did not do a amazing attendance for Ray although not bad, but maybe not what you would have hoped for. But like we now know sold the most DVDs in Ring of Honor history. Yeah. I mean, well, so I, so they said that Kobashi didn't draw well in Philadelphia and I'm not sure how yeah. well that Philly show drew on, uh, on DVD. Um, I'm sure it still did above average. Right. Um, yeah. But, I have um, to assume. The thing is, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what the financials would have been. Like, maybe it didn't make sense for Georgia Yalpro. Maybe they would have had to spend a lot of money, you know, and wouldn't think they'd recoup it. I mean, I don't know how well Jersey All Pro DVDs sold, but I can't imagine they were, they sold too well. And, um, the Joe vs. Kobashi match obviously did great, um, sales on DVD, but that's mostly, I don't think it's because of Kobashi's name. It's because of the legacy of the match itself. Yeah. Right. So, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't know anything about business in any way. So maybe they made the right decision. But yeah, it sounds crazy on the surface. Like, why would you give up that just because they yeah, didn't like, draw that great in Philadelphia? But yeah, I don't know. That's that's a, that's a story I had forgotten too. And as far as Kenna and Mara Fuji, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have come in anyway, even if that Jersey All-Pro thing had never even been on the table. But again, I don't know what I'm talking about. So maybe yeah. maybe they wouldn't have. I wonder what Jersey All Pro would have even booked for matches. I mean, th- they did sometimes would book Joe. So I guess if you really want to, you probably could have done Masao and Joe, which again, I mean, I think that would have drawn a lot of interest. Uh, they probably would have done something like Jay Lethal versus Mitsuharu Masao, which you know could wouldn't have, have been, been bad. Good. But could have been good. <laughs> yeah. But that brings us to the show we actually watched. The show that actually happened, Matt. I do, I, do, I do want to mention one thing before we start. Oh, go ahead. The Ring of Honor Hall of Fame. Um, oh, yeah. I completely forgot. Um, so they um, – the ROH. So we uh, – there's been a lot of wrestling news over the past week. And the good news for us is that we don't have to talk about wrestling news, um, current events, because we're a nostalgia podcast. We try to be as evergreen as possible. But um, but one of the news stories over the past few weeks has been that Ring of Honor is introducing their own Hall of Fame, and I guess they're going to have an induction ceremony. Also, um, is that right? Um, I, I'm I I've been keeping that close of tabs on it, but it feels like it'd be kind of weird to not do, especially because I don't know if you watched when uh. Um, Game Changer did their little independent wrestling Hall of Fame. I watched some of that and I thought that was really well done, you know, with uh, guys like uh, Dave Prezak and Lefisto and Homicide getting inducted. So I, 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 I would hope, although maybe getting all of those guys, especially like a guy like Danielson, all in one place, willing just for speeches, I, I, I wonder actually. Yeah, I'm sure I mean, the answer is out there. We just haven't done our research. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, it would make sense, like eventually at least, to do it, even if it's not imminent. But um, 
so um, Jeff Schwartz and Shane Hagedorn had an honorable mention. They have their uh, Hall of Fame that they that they do every year. They've done it now for the past uh, three years, the end of the year. And, and, and that's, uh, and that's a really good representative Hall of Fame. But it is kind of cool to see the company itself acknowledging, uh, its, its legacy, obviously, since that's kind of our whole thing is the legacy of ROH. And I think that the first, uh, few choices for the Hall of Fame are, are kind of no-brainers, right? They, they, they pick the Briscoes first, which, of course, like, if you didn't, that would be such a slap in the face of the Briscoes to not have them as the number one pick. You know, they've been there since day one. They've been there since till the end of what we've had so far. They've been uh, very decorated, been excellent pretty much the whole time. So that makes sense. Obviously, Brian They're still Dan- holding and defending the titles. Yeah, exactly. Titles. I mean, they, they, they are the mandatory number one picks for the Hall of Fame. Um, after that, Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe, of course, you know, like they're like the two most legendary champions in ROH history. Um, Samoa Joe really put the ROH title on the map. Brian Danielson, you know, is probably is, you know, the biggest star based on ROH, right? Because obviously CM Punk's also a huge star, but mm-hmm. he wasn't there as long. You know, Danielson was like the, associated with ROH for years and years and, you know, became a giant celebrity. So he's, you know, he'd be the right guy for, and also just probably the best wrestler that they ever produced. Um, I mean, when we did your episode of your old podcast, List Them and Learn, the episode where we each ranked our 10, you know, the best Ring of Honor careers or wrestlers, period, which, again, go back and look for that. Just Google that. That was kind of the genesis of our show. Um, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, I had Joe number one. You had Danielson number one. So, like, and the others were, I mean, our, and the others were our number twos, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely, you know, it's perfect for what even people like us would think. Yeah. Now, the one thing is like that the Honorable Mention Hall of Fame does, and I don't know if the actual official Hall of Fame is going to do, is um, honor the, – the the Honorable Mention Hall of Fame honors behind-the-scenes people too. So they also include Carrie Silkin, who is the longtime owner of ROH um, after the original owners or the uh, kind of had to – you know, for reasons that we've discussed at length, had to uh, give up the company <laughs> – and um up until they became you know part of Sinclair and and they have Gabe Sapolsky as a member of the Hall of Fame and to me like it would be great if ROH did acknowledge some of the behind the scenes people because i absolutely think that Gabe Sapolsky belongs in any first class of an ROH Hall of Fame i mean i'm you know i'm someone who thinks that Gabe Sapolsky should be in you know, a pro wrestling hall of fame, like wrestling observer hall of fame, just because, I mean, if you, I mean, in, in that independent wrestling is not well represented in uh, the observer hall of fame for a variety of reasons, you know, based on, you know, the standards of what it's supposed to be. But I think that in the decade of the two thousands in America, after ECW and WCW went out of business, indie wrestling took on a much more, um, a much more a primary role in what American wrestling was over the past 22 years or 21 years, I guess, than it had, you know, in the nineties or the eighties or whatever, you know what I mean? Like it, because it was, you know, mainstream wrestling was just WWE and, you know, you can, you know, decide, you know, what, how, what level you want to place uh, TNA on in terms of how you would uh, classify it. But, Indie wrestling was just such a big part. Like, if you were just like a wrestling fan and you wanted to watch American wrestling, 
you had to either watch WWE or indie wrestling for a long time. Um, and, you know, and TNA used indie guys throughout their entire run during that era. And ROH was the main indie. And if you look at the history of wrestling during that era in America and went from and looked at like how it progressed and who became the stars in the in the 2010s and now the 2020s like it's all guys from that era of indie wrestling and i don't know if any non-wrestler was as influential on what indie wrestling looked like and who the stars were and the style that was promoted um any non-wrestler was as influential as as Gabe Sapolsky was during that time and i think his influence was mostly pretty darn positive, at least as far as the type of stuff that I like and as far as like what's celebrated now and the talent that ROH promoted. Like I know that ROH, you know, they're, they're, they did, it's not like they promoted talent that nobody else was promoting, but they gave them a bigger platform. They made them bigger stars. They booked them and protected them in a way that made them seem like stars on the indies. You know, I, I feel like Brian Danielson would have had a successful career no matter what, but if it wasn't for like, and Samoa Joe too, but if it wasn't for coming into, you know, into a business with Gabe and, and being booked by him the way that, that they were, I mean, would they be as famous as they are now? Would Brian Danielson be one of the most successful pro wrestlers of the past, you know, I mean, in terms, in terms of the mainstream of the past 15 years, would Samoa Joe have been? I feel like CM Punk would have been like I, I don't know like just because of his promo ability from the very beginning but like these other guys i don't know and you know then not just them obviously nigel mcginnis austin aries roderick strong like uh, you know even some of the guys that was, were promoted and evolve later but obviously this we're talking about roh i don't know i feel like he he ha- i i feel like people don't praise what and what gabe did enough um especially you know you know, um, nowadays it's just, you know, we've, we're so far removed from that era. I feel like he had a pretty positive influence on at least the on-screen product of pro wrestling. So I wanted to, I wanted to mention that. I think that he, he really deserves his, his accolades. I I mean, I think in terms of non-wrestlers in the ring of honor hall of fame, the only one that has even close to the same strength of a case is, is Gabe and I don't know if I would even rank this person above Gabe would be Carrie Silken just because he kept it alive yeah yeah exactly but I mean other than that that's the only person I think that is not an in-ring performer that has even close to a comparable case as as Gabe in terms of the Observer Hall of Fame for those who don't know it's kind of a weird thing where um wrestlers there's a set criteria for the hall of fame it's uh you're supposed to judge them on in-ring ability so how good they are at working matches uh star power so how good they were at drawing and influence and then um non-wrestlers which is everything else you know managers uh commentators bookers everything everything else is like there's no real set criteria it's it's a much more vague thing but if we were going to apply the in-ring standard like for for Gabe, I mean, if we would call like uh, the quality of his product, like his in ring work, I, I think Ring of Honor is one of my you know this run we're covering is one of my favorite wrestling promotions of all time. Um, in terms of drawing power, obviously he has no case there. You could argue you know part of that isn't his fault, but you know I mean his promotions aren't 
money makers. They generally just aren't. Although, you know, I, I always, you know, going back to like, if you asked me in 2005, I would have said, you know, it's not fair to use the same standards of like what makes something draw, what makes something a draw in an, the indie setting as it does. Like ROH, like was a draw in terms of like, it was the most popular indie and it was built from the ground up. Like, I, I do think that means something. I get that it's not a draw in the way that like you think of like a big drawing money making promotion, but I don't think it's nothing. But anyway, go ahead. Well, see, that's where I would go to influence the third criteria, because I think that, is, you know, part of the influence is people that want to like, you know, and there are certainly are criticisms to make about Gabe Sapolsky, but like, um, sure. But those, those think, are played out. And like, I feel like, like I'm trying to like, this is like, like, there's a lot of really important positive influence that he had, but anyway, yeah, yeah, but no, I, and you're not just saying that because Gabe in the last couple of weeks, uh, te- you know, he he did something I'm sure you loved, which was tell me that he's worried about me until I should stop uh, tweeting such depressing, like self-deprecating things. But anyway, um, is, yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's your that's like that's what makes you popular <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> it's my brand, man. no, um. But no, I would say on influence, I was going to say what I think has always been an unfair criticism of Gabe is that people will go on him. They will go on him and say, like, they'll always say everything that was part of Ring of Honor, you know, Gabe didn't start like, you know, especially by Ring of Honor's nature being kind of like the original all-star indie. Like they did, you know, Gabe did not invent indie wrestling. He did not develop from the start. I think some guys certainly continued to develop in Ring of Honor, but, you know, guys like, you know, whether it was CM Punk and IWA Mid-South and places like that, or Samoa Joe and places like Zero One, stuff like that, like, they all got got to Ring of Honor quality somewhere else before they were asked to come to Ring of Honor, but I I think that's a, a really kind of diminishing criticism because I think influence can also be, you got people to take notice of, of things and people and they wouldn't have otherwise. And I know for a lot of people, Ring of Honor was their gateway to the indies. And for a lot of people, including a lot of the major wrestling journalists, Ring of Honor became the one indie they would pay attention to. Like, I think a good example of this would be the Dragon Gate stuff, which we'll be covering not too far in the distant future as we get into 2006 Ring of Honor. But, like, the some would argue, and I think, uh, I think it was Case Lowe who writes for Voices of Wrestling. We'll probably talk about that too next year. He wrote an article about how there's an argument to make that that initial Dragon Gate six man tag in 2006 was the most, in, one of the most influential matches to like the wrestling in terms of the in ring product of pro wrestling in the last generation. And you could say, well, how's Gig get any credit for that? You know, it, it's Dragon Gate wrestlers. They had a bunch of tags before, but I think that's the point is there were so many journalists and fans they could have watched Dragon Gate at any time if they just, you know, tape trade or, or find a good, you know, download somewhere. And it wasn't until that match that so many people took notice of stuff like that. And I think where Gabe and Ring of Honor, where his influence really is, is he kind of was like the ultimate gateway for a lot of people to tip them off of like, I'm, I'm like pruning and curating this group of talent for you guys. Like, you might think you might not be the ultimate indie fan like some of us really hardcore nerds are. So here's the one stop shop, and you can trust. And I'm like, I have a good sense of taste. You can trust me. And I think that alone elevated a lot of um, the people you were talking about. How you know a lot of guys, their careers were greatly held by him. Yeah, and and also like the booking actually, like the actual booking of the of the wrestlers, like not just like deciding who to you know who to push, but like how he pushed them. I, I feel like. 
he, uh, you know, along with, you know, pro wrestling Noah at the time, I think he made like long-term protected title reigns um, in vogue again. Like I, I really do because like if you look back at the the popular like boom period in the late 90s, early 2000s in WWF and WCW, titles changed hands a lot, like world titles. And then after um, ROH and, you know, again, and Noah, you know, with Kobashi had these like, you know, year plus almost two year title reigns for a few different people, you know, whether it's Joe, Danielson, Nigel, um, WWE started doing that too, right? They had a really, like, they had like a really long yeah. John Cena reign. They ended up having punk, punk with the title for over a year. I mean, even now they have pretty long title reigns sometimes. Um, not always, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, AEWs, they don't, they don't change their title every, you know, willy nilly every two seconds, but that really was how it was with the world title in the late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, yeah. I don't know how long Steve Austin's longest title reign was, but it certainly wasn't a year. I think it was like maybe like WrestleMania, um, WrestleMania 17 to like, what was it? Um, uh, Unforgiven that year when he lost to Kurt Angle. Like that was the longest one that he ever had. You know, I don't think the, that during that era, the rock ever had a super long reign. Um, you know, um, even Triple H's long runs during that time were like interrupted from time to time. I feel like um, ROH kind of made that popular again with 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 Joe. So like I, even that, like that little thing that people don't think about, I think was a part of his influence too. Um, just like a lot of little things you don't think about. So anyway, um, I well, think I that he's a Hall of Famer. Me, I, I agree. And uh, one thing I, I, I guess. We should eventually get to the show, but I, I think that prompted one thing. I was other thinking his other big influence, I think, is – and again, people could argue, oh, this was going to happen anyway because it had to happen without ECW and WCW. But I, you know, it, whether it had to happen or not, it happened under him with Ring of Honor, which is the idea of uh, – you know, I think modern – I mean ECW did this to agree, but I think for the most part, like our modern conception of US or even worldwide indie wrestling as like this cool alternative to the mainstream and, and, and that it could be creatively seen as on the level of, of the top level of wrestling. That wasn't really a thing in this generation before Ring of Honor, and it took even him uh, a few years to break that down because, Matt, how many times on through the years have we read quotes and like made fun of them and joked from like Dave Meltzer in particular about, oh, this was good. But this wouldn't have worked in WWE. And eventually, especially by this point, those quotes are, are fading away. And I think it's because from the start Ring of Honor to the point we're covering now in, on the episodes like this, like, this, you know, one great, you know, kind of buzzworthy match at a time, Gabe and the wrestlers in Ring of Honor were able to change the perce- perce- perception that indie wrestling was just for, like, people that weren't good enough to be in the major leagues. Yeah, Absolutely. And uh, so that brings us to the show we're covering today. It's coming in. It's interesting that we've done so much to hype about Ring of Honor on this episode, and now we're covering a pretty BS B show. But we'll we'll see what we think of it as we go through it. And that show would be Showdown in Motown. It took place November fourth, two thousand five, at the Michigan State Fairgrounds and Expo Center in Detroit, Michigan, in front of a reported crowd of four hundred and twenty five fans. This was Ring of Honor's debut in Detroit. I remember a few shows ago I mentioned that uh, Gabe had a quote months before the show on the PW Torch, where he said that um, Detroit tickets were selling really well. Um, 
425 tickets isn't, you know, it's not the worst of Ring of Honor would have in 2005. It's not. I, I think they would have probably liked in most markets these days at least 500. So maybe they just didn't get a good walk up. I don't know. But I mean, it's sometimes the first time in a market it did not draw great and it would grow a bit. But either way, there's a few little notes about this show that were, are kind of interesting, Matt. Uh, first off, The Observer wrote, there were some backstage problems at two different shows over the weekend in Detroit, two different wrestling shows. There was an issue between Adam Pierce after the Ring of Honor show was over with somebody doing concessions that was said to be an embarrassment, although it was a miscommunication that was quickly settled. Now, I, 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 I remember this story from a shoot interview, but go oh, on. Oh, you do? What is it? I, I bet I tried to find out what is – I'm so curious. What, do, you, do you have – what is this? Uh, yeah, so the, in, the, uh, in the shoot that um – were that Gabe Sapolsky and Adam Pierce did together. Oh God. They talked I haven't about seen that this. so long. So basically Adam Pierce said, and I watched this fairly recently, so I feel confident that I'm accurately describing at least what he said in this in the shoot, that he wanted a copy of the Glory by Honor show where he made his ROH debut. And Gabe had told him that he could just go take a copy from the merchandise. Oh stand. yeah. And he went up and uh what's the guy's name? Ross, I forget his last name, one of the guys who, you know, worked in the RH office and he was working the merch table. He went up to him and he he held it up and he was like, All right, just so you know I'm taking this. And the and the guy was like, Okay, yeah, twenty twenty bucks. <laughs> and, and and he was like, what? And he's like, no, Gabe said I could take this. And the guy goes, I, I don't care what Gabe said. And then I think Adam Pierce like told him off and threatened him and walked away, basically. <laughs> that's what, that's uh, what Pierce said in the, uh, in that shoot interview. So I, 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 uh, I can only go by that. I do somewhat remember that story. It's funny because I can't imagine the last few days what that story could have been because for some reason I forgot that I haven't seen that shoot in so long. But like, kept saying concessions. I kept imagining, well, going back to the theme of the show, hot dogs or something like, uh, Pierce was like, look, I'm comp three. I was expecting kind of the story you told, but with hot dogs. What's <laughs> up? Ex- hot dog? Exactly. Hot dogs. Um, next story would be Dave Meltzer. This is something that we could have talked about during the show, but I, I feel like it's, it kind of, We'll just do it off the top because it's an interesting thing. Uh, Dave wrote about this show. There was either a problem with the ropes or an incredible amount of bad luck as Christopher Daniels, Austin Aries, Chris Saban, and Delirious all botched springboard spots. And yeah, like if you, if you were fans, if you have a weird wrestling fetish for wrestlers like eating shit on springboard spots, there may be no wrestling show better for you than a showdown in Motown because yeah, a lot of people, including by, guys, by, like, by the way, all of that is metaphorical. He does not, he's not trying to. Get your attention if you have a fetish for wrestlers eating shit. <laughs> Just want to be clear on that. that that's why we talk about figurative language, dark. people. Figurative language. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I would guess that it was the maybe the roast being too loose because it seems, especially like Daniels and Aries aren't guys that like mess up very often. The fact that they plus two other guys. That's a that that must have been something to do with maybe the ropes were tight a little too loose or something like that. It, it it's bizarre that's it happened at least four times on the show. And then Matt, finally, the last thing I think we need to talk about with the show we talk we go through the show segment by segment is what this show is actually believe it or not most known for, which is the original cover of the show, which I might have to download and make the image of this show. It, it is the most infamous cover in yeah, Ring of Honor history. You have to. 
for, for, for those who have not seen it, just quickly Google Showdown in Motown ROH, and you will see probably two different DVD covers, because according to Shane Hagedorn on the Honorable Mention podcast, you know, he talks about how a lot of times, you know, Ring of Honor, they would, on their DVDs, they would print up an initial order of 1,000 copies, and if the show sold more than 1,000 copies, they would go into a, you know, a second printing, and sometimes the show didn't sell 1,000, so they never went into a second printing. This was a show, he said, that did go into a second printing, which kind of shocked me, because on paper, this doesn't seem like a show that has, like, a super, like, really enticing lineup. It's, it's, it's a decent lineup on paper, but... Um, maybe that was just owing to the power of, you know, Koba- Joe versus Kobashi having such big sales. Maybe a lot of people were just for the next few months, like, you know what? I want everything. You know, I, I've got the ROH fever, but either way, the initial printing for this one has a different cover than the second printing. And the, and that's because the initial printing has Danielson and Chris Saban on the cover and the logos on the bottom third of the cover. And it is covering just like their groin area. They're both in their wrestling gear. So it looks like they are completely naked. Speaking of fetishes uh, for wrestlers. (laughs) And Daniels in particular, they use kind of a weird photo where he's kind of looking off to the side. Like he's either kind of confused or kind of embarrassed, which again, kind of fits. So if you, if you look online, there is a set on the second printing, they changed it. This was something that was made fun of a lot by fans on the message board and stuff like that. So the second printing, they picked, they put the same logo in the same spot, but they had different pictures of Saban and Danielson, including Saban in like full gear before, with, with like a ring jacket and stuff. So it did not look like they were naked about to have a confusing fun time. And yeah, it is the most infamous cover, not the most infamous show, the most infamous cover. But uh, finally, we opened the show proper. With Brian Danielson backstage, not naked. Uh, Brian says some people have been asking him why at the last Ring of Honor show he was flipping off fans and not doing the moves they were requesting him to do. He says the truth is some of those fans are pricks. And if you're going to be a prick to him, he's going to be a prick to you. Brian says you don't tell him how to wrestle. He wrestles how he wants. The fans, corporate America, no one tells him how to wrestle. If the fans want to cheer boo for him, either way he's happy with it. Chris Saban then interrupts Brian, and this I thought was an incredible saying. I might have to video clip this. I don't know, Matt. This is um, Saban walks in and goes, you know, tonight's going to change the course of Ring of Honor forever. He gives a very snarky, good luck to you, brah, and shakes hands. And Danielson just has the greatest reaction where he looks at Chris Saban's T-shirt, which is a shirt for the band Sublime. And Danielson, just in a very muted kind of bemused, low-key way of speaking, just says, Sublime, huh? Cool. Good luck to you as well. And then he says, well, it looks like he's stifling, like just a giant grin. Like which is, which is often how he looks. In yeah. Um, and he acts so unimpressed. And I thought it was just like that felt like so Brian Danielson. This is his first like sort of heel promo. It's not like full on, but like he's starting to to embrace that element of his character, even in the promos. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting to see. I thought I watched. I wondered after the last show, like where we talked about how him and, his, and Roderick Strong in their first match together, how that was really the birth of a new era of Daniels. And I thought, well, is he going to like immediately seize that on every show, or is that going to kind of fade in and out till he kind of locks in? And no, like watching the show, we'll talk about when the match later. Like 
he absolutely what he discovers is a strong thing. He is like full force from that point on. Like he's going to run with it. Yeah, and he, and he cut he he shaved he buzzed off the bad haircut. Started growing a little bit of a scraggle back on his yeah. face. So he he's get he's becoming the Ryan Danielson that we all know today. <laughs> um. We then go to the ring and we see Jim Cornette making an entrance. Uh, Cornette, so this is, uh, I believe the first, show, was this the first show where, uh, Cornette actually attended as the official Ring of Honor commissioner? I mean, he had the show with Percy Pringle where he announced, but this is the first one since the announcement. He had the couple shows where he had to do like the remote video. So, um, Cornette is here. He hypes up the crowd. He points out one fan in the back who's dressed up as Hulk Hogan. I I, I think his name is Randy Hogan. He's like a, a well-known fan from all the way back to the 80s who looks like if Hulk Hogan let himself go and he is dressed up like Hogan. He's, I guess, a big wrestling super fan, sort of like Vladimir. Um, he points him out in the crowd and he asks him if he'll ever die. <laughs> and then And then he says his body's better than the real Hogan's these days. Uh, Cornette says he's been looking at that fan for so long, he thinks his social security number is one, which is like just a joke my dad probably would have told. Um, Charming. Moving on. Charming. (laughs) Moving on. Jim thinks this is the first time he has ever been in Detroit since 1990. I mean, not ever, but first time he's been in Detroit since 1998. Cornette gives some Detroit wrestling history. He puts over the original Sheik, who obviously was a big Detroit mainstay, that actually gets a surprisingly uh, decent Sheik chant from, you know, a 2005 wrestling crowd. He talks about seeing him when he was 12 years old and being scared when the Sheik brought a snake to the ring. He's probably Tells told st- that story in so many car trips with other wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, if you're 12 years old and a, uh, and a big-time wrestler brings a snake to the ring, you're, you're going to tell that story a lot. Um, he he t- uh, said, hey, if, if, I saw, if a wrestler brought a st- snake to the ring in front of me now, I might tell that story to a couple of people. But uh, – he tells a story about uh, meeting the Sheik as an adult before he turns it all back around to putting over the Detroit fans. He asks them if Detroit wants Ring of Honor back, which Matt, I thought was a little weird because the crowd hadn't seen a single live match yet from Ring of Honor, like the show hadn't begun. Um, but they do cheer yes. Jim promises this is the start of a new tradition in Detroit. He thanks the crowd and he goes to leave when the lights go out. And it's, you know, the opening beats of Freebird start up as Adam Pierce comes out. I, need to, I want to say not, one thing about this. I oh, feel go. like the intro to Freebird and like the Pierce's entrance was like longer than anything that Pierce did in his promo. Like, like, like that whole, <laughs> like, I feel like they did not need all that buildup, but I guess that's kind of part of the heel shtick, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we we get a cut to Pierce and he's um I mean they they, they cut cut out something maybe it was just for time or what but yeah it, it, they put the whole preamble of like Freebird like and then like that he starts walking down the aisle and then they cut away it's it's <laughs> it's really just it's funny what they chose to keep and what they chose to cut. It would have been funny if they cut if this was the moment where Adam Pierce like tried to get the glory by honor DVD like mm-hmm. during his entrance and they had to cut that out. I'd be like, just a second, Jim, just a second. I got this. He's like, Gabe said I could have this. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, he, he um, let me. I lost my place in my notes. 
so yeah, we, we have a weird cut to, from in Pierce's interest to Pierce in the ring, telling Cornette he has an offer for him. The crowd's already chanting for Pierce to shut the fuck up. Pierce ca- calls the crowd down. He points out that this is not just Cornette's first night in Detroit in a long time. This is Pierce's first night in Detroit in six years. Uh, he tells Cornette that it seems Jim's career has nosedived in recent years. Pierce says he's the hottest ticket in pro wrestling right now, and he's offering Cornette the chance to ride his coattails to the top. Pierce just wants quality opponents high-profile matches, and championship gold. Corn at this point just reiterates a lot of Ring of Honor's core values, including that wrestlers get their opportunities only by winning matches. He neglects the fact that their champion currently is doing an open challenge where wrestlers that aren't even in the company get title shots. But um, And he also says that the fans get what they paid for in Ring of Honor. He says Pierce has a lot of talent, but if he wants all those opportunities, he's going to have to get in the ring and fight and scratch and claw and earn them. Pierce wonders how the cornet who swings tennis rackets around is talking about honor, but Pierce then ends by saying he'll do what cornet says. He'll he'll earn it. And so that's our little segment here. Um, Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, like, I, I do feel like for Ring of Honor, cornet leads a little too much it leans a little too much into the history stuff but it does get a nice reaction it is kind of nice and like you know that is cornet's thing i mean that is part of one of his strengths is he does have such a genuine love and knowledge of wrestling history up till like a certain year 25 or 30 years ago um yeah i mean it's it's definitely it's unusual to open with such a long promo segment i know that on like a lot of other new market debuts they have opened with promos mm-hmm. So, like, it's not that weird. I mean, clearly they had big plans for Pierce to, like, give him this spot, and you know, but, and, you know, kind of does do some good foreshadowing because Pierce ends up being, like, Cornette's henchman after yeah. he turns on Homicide. He's also, like, a represent, he's, you know, he's aligned with him during the CZW feud. Um, it is weird, though, like, the edit job they did here, not just Pierce's entrance, but also they cut away at the end of the promo, like, basically mid-sentence. It's like you know, obviously there must yeah. be stuff. There must be stuff that's going on that like me, me, makes them have to cut away. But it's just a very strange editing job. Yeah, this that will not be the last of the edits to happen tonight, including something I, I will talk about later that I would have liked to have seen. But uh, <laughs> that brings us to the opener. BJ Whitmer, escorted to the ring by Lacey, defeated Delirious via pinfall in nine minutes twenty-seven seconds after he hit a wrist clutch exploder. Uh, Matt, finally, this might be a record for us. It's uh, other than the Feinstein episode where it's taken us 45 minutes or so to get into talking about a match. What'd you think about the first match of the show? Um, they mentioned that Delirious, like, still hasn't gotten a singles win, which, you know, is interesting. It's interesting also to think that, like, they, Delirious still hasn't really been booked outside of the Midwest at this point. Like, you know, he becomes a pretty big part of ROH in 2006, but at this point, he's just sort of a regional, a regional attraction. And, yeah. um, and, you know, this is, you know, they're trying to get BJ over at the new Lacey, uh, you know, Lacey's Angels gimmick, but he's still pretty much the same BJ. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, embrace the changes the way, um, Jimmy Jacobs did, although we'll get to that later because yeah. something weird happens with him on this show. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, they try some stuff. Um, there's a little bit of comedy, um, early. There's like some cool stuff like, Whitmer actually does a thing where he like d- the where Delirious does a monkey flip and Whitmer sort of lands on his feet like he sort of stumbles a little bit so it's not super graceful but it's still impressive for someone BJ's size. Um, and then you know they 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 have some entertaining stuff down the stretch with um, you know uh, near falls and roll ups and two counts and whatnot. Um, but 
um, ultimately, it's not much. You know, it's just like a yeah. solidly entertaining, but a little bit sloppy ROH opener, um, allowing Delirious to get some hope spots um, than you might expect, more hope spots than you might expect. But eventually, it's just they're trying to build some momentum for BJ, and that that's pretty much all it was. Uh, yeah, I agree. I thought this was a very standard, nothing really wrong with it, but really instantly forgettable, like average opener. Delirious not doing very much comedy here. I think there was like one real delirious comedy spot where he like ducks down in the middle of the ring at one point, just stays there for a while. That's probably about as humorous as this gets, but he mostly plays it straight and tries to have an actual match. And yeah, like you said, it, it, it's fine. Um, you know, Delirious does a few different Ranas, and I thought the highlight of the match was other than the spot you talked about was when he does like a running one off the apron and, you know, Whitmer grab just holds him and swings him into the bar- barricade to counter. Uh, Whitmer's being maybe a little more heelish here. He's starting to, you know, get on the crowd a little bit, telling him, you know, not to cheer for Delirious. He's choking Delirious a bit, stuff like that, grinding him down with a mid-match headlock, that kind of stuff. And, and I did like the end where the the end of this match is just Whitmer like hitting big bomb after big bomb on Delirious, all his biggest stuff like a big German suplex, a dragon suplex, a brain buster, a huge lariat, and then um and then eventually the wrist clutch explodes. And I like during this, Delirious doesn't ever get a move. Like like he he gets a couple big flash near fall pin attempts to break up this run of offense, but he doesn't ever get a hit to hit another move. And sometimes I like that because yeah, it's really exciting to see matches to end with like back and forth, your move, my move, your move, my move. But so many matches do that. I like a little variety. I like the idea of like this one wrestler, he's kind of dead, but he's doing just enough with like these roll-ups and stuff that you think maybe he'll pull it out as like a complete fluke, but you know, unless he gets something like that, like he's not going to make a big comeback. And, and I, I, I like that kind of vibe and I, I like that, but overall very average. So uh that brings us to the ring of honor, top of the class trophy, three-way elimination match so yes this was the uh the first crowning of the ring of honor top of the class trophy uh we get a gabe sapolsky voiceover during the entrances explaining that this is to crown the first holder of the top of the class trophy which he says will be defended like a title among ring of honor students after this the match was davy andrews defeating Derek dempsey and shane hagedorn uh, and it's an elimination three-way, so Dempsey eliminated Hagenorn first, then he eliminated Dempsey to finally win it. And I would, I'm saying finally, we we got less than two minutes of clips of this match. And, and I think on an honorable mention, Shane Hagenorn, who was in this match, he mentioned how, one, this was not the match that they were supposed to have because they were booking it out, like qualifying um, – pre-show on matches on the pre-shows for the, for this tournament. I think Shane was himself actually. And they were planning, they were going to have this match on a later show, but for some reason, Gabe changed his mind and won the sh- match on this show. Uh, Shane says as a result, like Pele Primo was supposed to be in this match, but he couldn't uh, get to work this show. So instead we get this combination of wrestlers. Um, We get less than two minutes of clips. What we saw, I would say looks decent. There's some stiff shots, mostly for Davy Andrews, who absolutely just murder, murders Hagedorn with a, music, a Yakuza kick right away to start the match. He later boots, uh, Derek Dempsey in the face, in the head with a real sickening thud. It's like this, there's no thigh slap, but just like that dull thud. Uh, there's a couple of nice suplexes. Andrews even gets a nice ovation from the crowd after a spear. So, I mean, the crowd's more into this than a lot of student matches, uh, you know, we've seen bits of. Andrews eventually wins the whole thing with an abdominal stretch. 
kind of a stretch plum type version. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll say, Matt, before I throw it to you is just, I believe this is one last thing Shane mentioned about this is like the match wasn't that much longer. I think he said than what they showed like, this show is nearly three hours, but he, you know, as always, they could have edited some of the entrances, including the one you talked about in the opener. There's a bunch of ads at the end of this DVD. Like, it's not like this from the sounds of this was not a match not cut down from like 10 minutes to two. It was cut down for probably like four or five or something to two, which I don't know if that means there was something bad they wanted to cut out or what, but it was definitely kind of weird. Yeah, what they showed looked fine. Like, it yeah. looked actually pretty impressive considering their experience levels. Um, you know, Shane was getting good heel reactions very early in his career, which, you know, good for him. You know, Andrews, I think, did look good with his stiff shots. I think Dempsey, like you said, had a couple pretty good suplexes. Um, that the deep abdominal stretch that Davey got the tap out with, I thought was pretty cool. So, like, yeah, I mean, what they showed was, was fine. Like, uh, you know, and, and like you said, the crowd reacted well. I also enjoyed, like, as Shane Hagedorn's music was playing, you heard a fan yell, it's dark and I'm scared. Hold me. And I was thinking, man, I can relate. So, um, that was the other highlight. Uh, there's, there's something also that this, this kind of plays, this match kind of plays into a pattern that something I want to talk about. Well, we'll get into that later. So, uh, Next up, we go backstage where the full complement of Generation Next, Austin Aries, Jack Evans, Matt Seidel, Roderick Strong are all there. Like a Survivor Chung- Series promo. <laughs> Jay Chung is too, is there too. She looks very happy, and she is very handsy on one Mr. Strong. She's rubbing up on him. She's hugging him. Aries Strong, says, Strong, big- Strong definitely seems to have taken to Jade more this week than he did the week before in that promo from This Means War. Yeah, they've turned up the PDA – to 11 or 12 after the last one was more like six from Chung, negative two from strong. <laughs> um, Aries says it's, it's a big weekend for generation next. They're at full strength and they're going to send a message to the embassy that steel cage warfare. They're going to prove who's the dominant faction in ring of honor. Um, Matt Seidel says it doesn't matter who the embassy buys. Gen next has the heart and the fire. And then Aries finally ends by going, will you two kids knock it off to the canoodling uh, Jay Chung and Roderick Strong? Not a very good promo. Seidel still had a ways to go on promos at this point. Yeah, and I do think – I realize they, they were all building to the Big Steel Cage Warfare match. But it's like this is a weekend double shot. This is the first night of it full of um like Generation Next and Embassy tag matches. So it's kind of weird to say like we're going to prove a point that we're going to prove – a few shows down the line. Like it kind of makes these matches feel like, uh, I guess these aren't really important then. Like it's like, it's like making a reminder to make a reminder. It, it, it just kind of took it one step back for me, but yeah. How, way- how do you thread that needle? I don't know, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, they're not a great right. promo. Um, next we got the ring of honor pure title match. Nigel McGuinness defeated Claudio Casagnoli by disqualification in 10 minutes, 13 seconds, when the ref caught Claudio holding Nigel's iron, and he assumed that Nigel hit Claudio with it, but shock of shocks, Nigel, when the ref wasn't looking, grabbed an iron and gave threw it you know, to uh, Claudio and then did the classic heel thing where he acted like he had been hit. Anyway, um, before the match, as always, Nigel grabs the mic after uh, ref 
Todd Sinclair's usual pure rules in-ring explanation. He says he appreciates all the Nigel signs and shirts he sees in the crowd, which I do not see any of that. He says that the fans keep cheering him. He says during the rules explanation, which again, they weren't. He says this Polish guy, which he means <laughs> Nigel, who I mean Claudio, who is Swiss and not Polish, isn't going to be able to understand the rules if they keep cheering during them. Nigel then calls the local sports team the Orange Wings. He does his usual Bret Hart, best there is, best there was, you know, the rest of it shtick. So, you know, Nigel's doing the, very much the same thing every time, but it, it still works for me. Um, This match, Matt, did not work quite as much for me. I still thought it was a decent above average match. I did not think it was as good as their previous match at Enter the Dragon. It felt like they were holding back a little, like almost like they were setting Ring of Honor's version of a TV match that was setting up for like a pay-per-view rematch. And that I think will become a theme on the show where there are a lot of matches on the show. I think that are fine, but they really just feel like they're just there to set up larger matches on future shows and all Ring of Honor shows and all wrestling shows have matches like this. But this was a show where I felt like that was really pronounced on a lot of the card and very strong vibes in that way. Um, anyway, um, I also thought one of my problems with this match was it didn't have much in the way of exciting, like late match offense. Like obviously the finish I just described, it's very anticlimactic and cheap, but that's Nigel's whole shtick. And I often like that because that's, you know, part of the gimmick. I think the problem is a lot of the good Nigel matches. It's like, there's some fun, like late match offense where the match is ramping up and then he does the cheap finish. And it feels like this match didn't have like that fun stretch run. It was kind of like middle of the match. And then before you get to kind of the late match fun, cheap finish time, again, which kind of made it feel more like a TV match. There is one great spot, I think, that's worthy of, like, late in the match, which is Claudia's going for a big European uppercut where he's running from one corner of the ring to another. Nigel turns it, you know, as Claudio's throwing it, into a backslide. But instead of, like, dropping down for the backslide while their arms are hooked, he flips Claudio so he's... um sitting on the turnbuckle in position for the Tower of London and then hits it. And I just thought, wow, that's a really cool move. And it's sad because then immediately after like one of the highlights of the match, they try and do another really ambitious spot where uh, Claudio gets, I believe, monkey flipped on, into a tree of woe position on the turnbuckle, except he doesn't quite hook it right. Like he, he seems like he's trying to hold on or get into a certain position, but he can't. So he kind of falls and has to put himself back in the position. I felt like, Oh man, you guys, I bet you that would have been really cool too, especially right after the last spot. Um, you know, there's not, again, though, there's nothing wrong. These are two really good wrestlers that, you know, they do well enough against each other. I, I thought it was interesting that this was a match where there were a lot of submissions where Claudio gets his arm worked over early. And after the first rope break, Nigel puts him in like three or four ar more arm submissions and Claudio never goes for the ropes, which, you know, I feel like a lot of pure matches, they're constantly finding ways to use all the rope breaks early. And this is a match with lots, or they just ignore it. This is a match where there's lots of submissions and they don't all use the rope breaks, which I thought was a little bit interesting. And, uh, yeah. And finally, Matt, before I ask your thoughts, I'll just ask you, what do you think? What do you think about the match? Also, what do you think about that? Um, th that finish, you know, which we've seen in wrestling over the years, you know, a fair share of times where the heel like throws the foreign object to the face and then acts like they've been hurt. You know, the Eddie Guerrero. I mean, people did it before him. That the lie, cheat, steal kind of spot. To me, I like the the the, the, the spot in theory, but I actually hate it in the world of wrestling just because. 
there are so many times in wrestling, including in Ring of Honor, where the refs, like, you know, they see a, a face that's gotten hit with an object and they're clearly like, you know, there's powder or blood or shards of a broken gimmick guitar everywhere. And they're just like, oh, I don't know what happened. I didn't see it. I can't make a call. So it's I always feel like it's really inconsistent, kind of an annoying way to me, like where for these kinds of finishes, it's just, they have to react in a way they won't react like the other 95 percent of the time where they're like, yeah, I'm just going to make an assumption and make a strong definitive call. But I mean, that's what you have to do for a finish like this. I don't mind that spot as a, like a kind of like a, a com a comedic like you know babyface gets one up on the heel like when Eddie did it sometimes in the middle of a match or like near the end. I don't like it as a finish um, almost ever. It's yeah. kind of weird, like kind of eerie that because ROH never does finishes like this. It's kind of eerie that they did this Eddie Guerrero tribute finish nine days before Eddie Guerrero died. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, you know, obviously just total coincidence, but it's, it is a little bit eerie. Um, I pretty much agree with you on the match. I think they were holding back a lot, it felt like. Cause, you know, they've had a lot of matches together. They're often pretty dynamic. This match was a little bit lower key. I also felt like this crowd was pretty decent as far as crowd reactions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they were, I think they were, this was the, they were kind of lower for this match than they were for a lot of the other ones. But like you said, they did do, you know, they're good wrestlers, so they did do some good moves. But I just, there was a, there was a little bit of a lack of energy to it. Um, like, like you said, they were, they were setting something up for later. And I think the finish took it down. The other thing I didn't like about the finish was, isn't this the sort of thing that Jim Cornette came in to yeah. put a stop to? And then like, you know, all, like, they just, nothing changed when Cornette came in. It's yeah. like, it's like that they built this up, like, we need an authority figure, we need an authority figure. And then, Really, Cornette just came in to do Cornette promos. He didn't come in to actually, like, nothing changed about, about anything. You know, they're still brawling in the crowd, which we'll get to in a little while. They still have cheap DQ finishes. Like, what changed where, based on this new commissioner? It sounds like he didn't really um, put the fear uh, into anybody to stop doing uh, what they'd been doing. Yeah, we threw our roses at Gabe earlier, but one flaw, and I'll get into another flaw later, so, but one flaw I would think is something that happens in Ring of Honor, I feel like a lot is a pattern is like the, this is a new era of rules, whether it's like, you know, we got a new commissioner or we're going to reinstitute a really strict ranking system or, you know, the, that era where they were like, you know, we're going to, you know, Ricky Steamboat talked to us and we agree, like, we're going to start really, adhering strictly to the to the tags like i feel like ring of others a pattern a lot of the time they're almost like someone that keeps wanting to do a diet but they keep breaking it after like two weeks where it's like love big strong proclamations like we're going to start doing this and take it more seriously and it almost always very quickly goes back to exactly what it was or like you were saying for this one sometimes does not even change to begin with yeah, I mean, I, I like, and, you know, and like, to be fair, like, this is a pattern with all of wrestling, like, when they say yeah. it's a new era. The only time, like, where it really sticks is when you, like, really bring in a new person that's just with a completely different, different vision to be in charge backstage, like when Bill Watts became the booker of WCW. Yeah. But, you know, things really did change at that point. But, um, otherwise, yeah, you're right, <laughs> completely. I, I mean, WWE, like, to, to your point, a few years ago, remember they had that promo where the McMahons and Triple H and whatever they were in the ring, and they basically said, "Yeah, we know our TV has been bad lately, but we hear you, and we're going to change it." And then nothing changed. So to, like, to, to to with fans' credit, I don't think there was a single person that actually thought anything would change when they did yeah. that promo. Um, one last thing I want to ask you about this match, Matt, and again, this is just a minor pet peeve. It's not a big thing, but um, 
you know, the last time these two interacted with each other before this match was the angle on the previous show where, uh, you know, Nigel actually bloodied Claudio with, with the iron and they did the whole, we joked about like the five minutes later graphic with the refs helping a bloodied Claudio. And we joked about how clear it was not five minutes later. And, and, and you know, then Claudio like really yelled that he was going to get back at Nigel and stuff like that. And, you know, for Ring of Honor stance, a fairly heavy, you know, angle with blood and, and grinding an iron into a guy's cut, stuff like that. And then this match, like, if you did not see that prior show, you would have never have known or suspected an angle like that happened. Like Claudio was very playful. He was doing lots of the haze and this didn't feel like there was any extra hate between these two guys. It felt like any other Claudio and Nigel match. So I would have liked if I'm going to complain a little bit more about a match I thought was decent. I would have liked this match to actually feel a little bit more intense in that sense. I suppose he could have like been a sterner, but like it is a pure title match, so you could make the argument he didn't want to like get too out of hand because you know they disqualify you in pure title matches in theory. Um, but they could have at least built up to a more intense like brawling type match. But I guess they were already doing that with uh, Homicide and Cabana, so maybe they didn't want to have two like hate feuds going on at the same time. But you're right, like you know that that should adjust the attitude of somebody that's on the uh, receiving end of getting bloodied by an iron. <laughs> yeah. Um, next, we go outside to a promo shot at night that in this promo is so dark, I honestly don't think I would have been able to tell it was Homicide and Julia Smokes if not that for the fact that I was able to hear their voices. I mean, this is close to the, to the lows of, I forget what show it was, that show where there was a backstage promo where it was all, literally almost complete darkness. Um Homicide compares Colt Cabana as a rapper to Vanilla Ice and PN News. Uh, Homicide says Colt is making fun of the urban culture, and he's not responsible for what happens to Colt now for doing that. Homicide says this isn't a character. This is Nelson Rodriguez, and I believe that Rodriguez isn't really Homicide's yeah, last he name. Said, he said Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Which is also, at least according to Wikipedia, not his last name. Wikipedia has Erazo, right, as his last name? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe Wikipedia is wrong. Either way, Homicide says that, that that's who you're talking to now and uh, not Homicide. He says he's going to cut Colt's tongue out. Smoke screams about Eminem and how he hates Colt now. So, you know, I by homicide standards, a good kind of crazy, angry homicide promo. Although he does the homicide thing that he loves to do whenever it's like a heated feud where he's like, this is real. You know, he does that with Steve Creel stuff a lot where he's always like, you know, this is real. And, you know, with the whole, this, you know, this isn't homicide. This is Nelson, which for some reason, I mean, Nelson's a standard name, but there's something funny about like, this isn't homicide you're talking to. This is Nelson. Like, well, you know, Nelson is the bully in the Simpsons. So that's a little <laughs> bit intimidating. Don't make fun of Homicide's name, Trevor. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted. What are you, what are you asking for? <laughs> um, that brings us to a generation next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong defeating Chad Collier and Salvatore Renaro, or just Sal Renaro, but that's what they write out on in the cage match results. When Evans pinned Renaro after he hit the ode to the Bulldogs, um, the observer wrote, this was originally supposed to actually be, uh, a tag title match with a uh, instead of Collier, it was supposed to be the champs. It was supposed to be Mama Luke and Sal together. But uh, the Observer wrote 
Tony Mameluke, who holds the tag titles with Sal Renaro, is out of action. It was believed it was a concussion. His wife, Brooke Spencer, claimed he had no sign of a head injury and he had been cleared to wrestle but was advised to take this weekend off. He had retired from wrestling for a while because he had suffered numerous concussions from his crazy bumps as of five years ago. She claimed he had not suffered a concussion in five years. So that's the story behind that. But as we've learned in recent years, Matt, from uh, pro wrestling between Brian Danielson, Christian, all sorts of other wrestlers, uh, apparently Corey Graves has been cleared. Like all brain injuries uh, heal if you just take a few years off. doesn't matter how severe they are. But anyway, what did you think about the match? This was my pleasant surprise of the night, I would say. I didn't remember this match. And obviously it was a makeshift tag team with Renaro and Collier. Um, but I thought it was a lot of fun. Like I, I thought, you know, Strong and Evans are. I just love that team. I think that they just they're so good together. And it's not like they were trying to have a classic match or anything. But they just like things move fast. I think Collier, you know, like you know, he just has a lot of personality as a heel. I think he works really well in tag matches. Um, he 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 uh he cut off Jack Evans at one point with a poke to the eyes and Renaro, when he was tagged in, yelled at him, you're better than that, Chad. You don't got to do that. <laughs> and Collier just responds with, that's wrestling, baby. And like, <laughs> he's got a point. Like that is, it is wrestling. But yeah, there's a lot of cool moves. At, at one point uh, on commentary, um, Prazak said, he called Jack Evans, perhaps the most acrobatic member of this match. And I was like, Perhaps, huh? Um, Chad Collier, you're going to break up that 6.30 at any time, Matt. Yeah, you never exactly, know. Exactly. Or, yeah, ex- um, or any sort of random flips. Um, but yeah, I just thought it, I just thought it, it had a fun, propulsive quality to it. Um, it wasn't too long. You know, there were some other fun spots. You know, Roderick long, lawn darting Jack into Collier. Um, a very, very long, almost Claudio length delayed vertical suplex by Strong on Collier. Um, much longer than I usually see. Um, Renaro sell, sells his back pretty well throughout the match, almost too well to the point where I was like, I don't remember you getting so much done to your back. I wonder <laughs> if it actually hurts. Like I was like, maybe this isn't selling, but he did a good job with that. Um, there were just a lot of fun moves down the stretch. Um, at one point, um, strong, he knees, uh, Renaro really hard in the face. And then he uses Jack to do that cool thing that they do where, Renaro is like draped over the middle rope in the corner and Strong flips Evans off of his shoulders into a double stomp, that thing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and just, um, then they, they, they finish, uh, with the, uh, with the Ode to the Bulldogs where, um, but it's the debut of, it's not just the regular Ode to the Bulldogs. Um, Jack does the Phoenix splash off of Collier's, um, back onto Renaro. Um, Collier is obviously on, uh, strong shoulders um i was thinking like maybe i would have pinned the non-champion but i guess they were setting up a title match the title match ends up being strong and aries not strong and evans but i guess yeah. you know you could make that do that logic but yeah i, I don't know I, I thought it was fun i think it, i think it was it wasn't long um but you know it wasn't short either i think it was a, a good length it was fast paced the energy was good the crowd was into it i i really i think this uh was a was the hidden gem of the night for me. Um, I always hate doing this because I always I always just say you you have a better memory to, than me, which is true. But I always hate because it always puts me. It, it ends up with me putting you on the spot a lot of times. But like you mentioned this, and Praise Exorcism on commentary that this is the first time that Ode to the Bulldogs ever ended with Jack doing a Phoenix Splash instead of a Moonsault. 
Is that true? Because I could have sworn he maybe did it one other time before this as the Phoenix Splash. I'm not sure, but part of the, my gut reaction was that can't be true, can it? But maybe it is. Well, so before he said it, I thought that too, that he had not done that before. Like, I know he did it a lot after this, but I, um, I did not remember him doing it in other matches we've reviewed so far. I could be mm. wrong, but like I said, oh, I think that's the first time he did that. And then Prazek said it was the first time he did it, which made me think that it was in fact the first time he did it. But I, uh, you know, my memory is not encyclopedic, so I guess it is certainly possible that you're right. Um, as far as the match, I like this match too. I did. I don't think I liked it quite as much as you, but it was definitely my favorite match of the show so so far. Not that that's a huge bar to clear. Uh, I thought this was a a good good fun tag match. Uh I do think that like this was on the low. I, I mean, I lo- like you. I love the Jack and Ronnie tag team. I feel like this was the like on the low end of what they're capable of. But they're such a good team that even the low end is really enjoyable. Like, but not I felt but like, not their worst match to, as a team because I will tell you what that one was in a little while. <laughs> yeah, um, this was a like. You know, I, I felt like watching this match as a person who's watching every show. I didn't see anything from this match that I haven't seen from them before. They did their basic match structure and a lot of the usual double teams, but all of that stuff is really fun. I mean, it's, it's their usual stuff for a reason because it works and it's really good. I agree with you that Sal's back selling was, was really good. Like I really noticed it. Like, and it was facially more than anything. Like there was. I haven't, I've been lucky enough in my life not to have many back problems, but I, I have a family where my mom literally broke her back once and had it misdiagnosed. Uh, crazy story. My mom was working somewhere. She broke her back and it, it, two, one of the discs got crushed so badly that, so she, her back is broken. She gets an x-ray. And, and they go, Oh, you just have one fewer disc than normal people. And then like a year and, and they don't really treat her well. And she had to like sleep sitting up for a month, just in unbearable pain. Like a year or two later, she goes to a different doctor. They're like, Oh, you had a disc crushed a while ago, didn't you? And it was like her disc got crushed so c- closely together. This one doctor just thought she had one fewer. And anyway, I'm just going to say, I have seen that look on people's faces that that Sal had. Like I, I, it was a very like I there's wrestling selling and then there was like I saw that facial expression. And I was like, I know that facial expression. I've seen that facial expression. And I just thought that I'm glad you mentioned it too. I, I thought that was very good back selling from one Sal Renaro. Um you know, good standard tag match. I thought Cell overall did good. And, you know, Chad Collier, I, I'm a fan of Chad Collier. I don't think he did anything particularly special in this match, but I mean, I, I always enjoy Chad Collier. Well, not always, but usually. But yeah, uh, overall, good match. So Yeah, and I was going to say, so definitely the worst, I think, um, Evans and Strong tag team match that we reviewed was the one at Death Before Dishonor 3, um, where they wrestle Lacey's Angels. Uh, I thought that was definitely not as good as this. Mm. My memory again, Matt, very bad. Uh, honestly, I am dreading. I, this is this is another thing I forgot to mention. This is the start of our usual. We only have five episodes left before we finally end another year on through the years of Ring of Honor history, and I am dreading this year having to rack my memory to come up with our year end awards because holy crap, this is the most shows we've done for a single year, and I'm going to have to remember. I'm going to have to go through a lot of notes to try and remember everything that's happened in 2005 ring of honor but just do what i do um half-ass it 
<laughs> I remember once on List Them and Learn, which again, I love plugging the Ultra because you had a great podcast and it's what started us working, podcasting together and started really raising my name, Matt. It was all thanks to you, but, um, LOL. <laughs> no, Matt, L E L. List them and learn. But anyway, uh, for those who don't know, <laughs> List them and learn was a show where you sometimes about wrestling, sometimes not where Matt and a get different guest each episode would Matt would pick a theme and they would each come up with their top 10 list for that theme and present it to each other. And I remember the first time I, we did it, I got so nervous about not doing a good job. And I worked really hard and, you know, the show was always so good. Like I was a fan already and I listened to it. And I was like, Oh, Matt's, you know, lists are always really well thought and really good. And I think, I think it was the first one we did. It might've been the second one. You were just like, Oh yeah, I, I just finished my list. Like now or something. You were like, I just whipped it up near the end, like right before record. And I was just like, God damn it. You can do that. And I can't like, I, I, it's just not in me, Matt. Um, I was so jealous of you at that point. As, I, I, I mean, a, I mean, mine. this is, I mean, I feel like this is a backhanded compliment because like, it just means that you prepare more and I'm lazier. <laughs> that's, that's, no, all because much, that's all you're describing. It's not I, like, I, it's not like it's a positive quality. <laughs> No, because no, I think it is because I feel like go, for people that go back and listen to that episode, it's a good episode. And like I always say, it's like kind of the pilot for through the years. And, and you have just as much insight. Like, like I also like if people listen to that show, they will have no idea. I, I, I'm sure of it that I'm the one who like obsessed over things and you're the one that's just riffing on your, you know, using them, your functioning brain that actually has memories and insights that you can come up with on the top of your head. And I need to plan everything out. Like you won't know the difference. And I think that's what pisses like not pisses me off, but makes me maybe jealous of like it takes me so much work just to do what I feel like a lot of people include, especially you, like you can just do it. But I, I, I mean I think that you are you're wrong about that people can't tell the amount of effort, like the amount of time that you put into something. It's there's a big difference between like doing something by the seat of your pants and actually taking the time to prepare. Like listeners of this show can tell the effort that you put in. It's not like, it's not all for nothing. I promise. Well, much like you, I have a difficulty accepting compliments. So moving on to the four corner survival match, Christopher Daniels is scored to the ring by Allison danger defeated Adam Pierce, Jimmy Jacobs and Samoa Joe in 17 minutes, six seconds when he pinned Joe after he hit the angels wing. So this was originally supposed to be Daniels versus Joe versus Homicide, versus Colt Cabana. So, you know, kind of a four-way where you take two single seats that are going on and just smush them into a, a four-corner match. But Homicide comes out first for this match, and he grabs the mic and says, forget about Joe and Daniels, play Cabana's music so he can fuck him up. And then Cabana's music does start. It's always funny when it's like, play his music so I can beat him up, and the song that is cued to play is Copa Cabana by Barry Manilow. Um, out comes Colt, only to get jumped by Homicide in the aisle. The brawl is on. They fight in and around the ring in darkness as Christopher Daniels' full entrance takes place, which is always bizarre when, like, you see, like, this crazy out-of-control brawl, and then another wrestler is just slowly and calmly making their ring entrance. This also makes my point about how too damn long Daniels' ring entrance was in this era because they (laughs) brawl a lot during this ring entrance. And then, uh... 
that that reminds me of like I, I always had this idea for the uh remember WrestleMania 17 the gimmick battle royal that where they had all the classic old wrestlers and the crazy gimmicks where uh Iron Sheik won apparently because he couldn't be expected to take a bump over the ropes <laughs> yes. and he was walking very so um slowly my idea always was that as i wanted a, that battle royal or then afterwards another battle royal like that where iron sheik like makes his entrance to the ring and he walks so slow that like by the time he gets to the ring there's only one person left in the ring and like basically his job is done for him because it's sometimes with some of these older people in battle royals it almost is like that but uh Anyway, this wasn't quite that, but for some reason, watching this, it definitely gave me a little bit of a vibe. Um, we hear a voice on commentary. I believe the honorable mention podcast is that this Sal Hanoi, who, you know, ran FIP and ran the production for Ring of Honor DVDs. We've talked before about how, like, uh, Gabe and Lenny and Prazak were, uh, do the post production, like doing the recording, the announcing in his house. So you hear Sal's voice go, hold Samoa's Joe's entrance due to the fighting. And then uh, Colt and Homicide at this point brawl into the crowd. They throw chairs at each other as Daniels and Alice in danger just calmly watch from the ring. Uh, Smokes grab Julia Smokes grabs Colt, but Colt lays him out. Colt and Homicide throw chairs right at each other's heads. We see more chair shots. Homicide throws Colt into a row of chairs. Colt throws Homicide onto two open chairs. More Smokes involvement as Colt beats him up, but Smokes quickly recovers and attacks Colt. Um, they've moved to the back of the building, which is too dark to see almost anything I wrote. Uh, table gets set up beside the bleachers. Colt tries to bulldog homicide through it, but homicide blocks and hits a tornado DVD off the bleachers, not through the table, just on the floor. I, I again, write in the notes, I can see literally nothing at times. Colt chance use the, I mean, crowd chance use the table. Homicide tries to ace crusher Colt off the bleachers through the table, which, you know, plays off something they did. He did recently to Colt on another show, but Colt fights back and he ends up superplexing Homicide off the bleachers through the table. That gets an instant replay. And I should also mention. Wasn't it an ace crusher? I, I thought it was Homicide tried the ace. Maybe you're right. I, I might have written it wrong in the notes. Either way, uh, Colt puts Homicide through the table. That gets an instant replay, and I, I should mention that's the second instant replay on the night. This was another rare night where Ring of Honor had instant replays because I believe they also did an immediate instant replay on the uh, Ode to the Bulldog. No, you're right. It was a vertical suplex, and it was it was Colt that hit it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I might have said something wrong. The, the, these notes, man, it's just a blur of homicide, Colt, chairs. I can't see anything. I, um, I will say this. I was extremely annoyed that the crowd was chanting, use the table. Because we've talked <laughs> about how dumb it is Like when they say, like, you know, like they're doing all sorts of crazy, like, you know, um, barbaric things. And they're like, we want a table. But it's even more annoying when they're very clearly setting up to use a table. And, like, they have a table. And then they're chanting, use the table. It's like, what did you think they were going to do with this table that they spent all this time setting up? Ugh, very annoying. What, yeah, what, is with, what is with these wrestling fans and their, quote, fetishes for tables? <laughs> but, yeah, like, it, I agree. We've talked about this before. But, like, I can't stand the idea of, like, you see that. Like, have you ever seen a match where a table comes into view and it doesn't get used? At least <laughs> one of them. Like, why are you scared that you're going to miss it? Um, it's, it's just crazy. But. So uh, the camera keeps cutting back to Daniels in danger at this point in the ring, and eventually Jim Cornette comes out. He says the fans fans paid to get a four-corner survival match, and they're going to get one. He says the first replacement for this matchup, because obviously Homicide and 
and Colt Kent be in this match now. They're really hurt. He says, the first replacement is from Motown, Jimmy Jacobs. Jimmy comes out. I know you mentioned earlier you want, you know, we were going to talk about this, and I agree this is bizarre. Jimmy comes out without Lacey, even though she was on the show because she came out with a BJ at the start on the opener match um, with his old music. Instead of the Lacey's angels theme, he comes out, you know, to the touch um, he's hussing. He's not wearing a suit. He's in the furry boots again. Uh, Prezak later on commentary, he says Jimmy is going back to his roots tonight because it's in his hometown, which I guess is their, their reason for all of this. But it was absolutely bizarre that like, after making a huge point of, you know, Jimmy is a different guy. He's really taking to Lacey. They just, for this one night, everything goes back like six months. Um, and then Cornette goes to announce and, uh, I mean, Cornette goes to announce the fourth entrant when Adam Pierce interrupts and demands to be put in the match. Cornette agrees. I wrote my notes. So sucks to be whoever was Jim's original backup because the asshole that just like keeps barging in gets what he wants. Uh, Cornette entered, this is the other previously scheduled member of the match, Samoa Joe, who gets a huge reaction from the crowd. Um, Matt, so this is like a, a, you know, we've seen this pattern on the recent shows where it's clearly something they're trying to do to make this feud seem wild and more indifferent. The idea of, we've now seen at least two recent cult, scheduled cult homicide matches where it's on the card in some form and it never happens, but instead we get a very lengthy crowd brawl. What do you think about this? I mean, like, were you getting kind of tired of it at this point? Or did, did you, I mean, they do put in hard effort. They do really chuck chairs at each other. You do get one big spot at the end. Like, where are your kind of opinions on that? I, I'm wondering. I'm totally fine with them, like, not delivering, like, a specific advertised match in this case because what you get is basically a match. Um, yeah. But – I do think this particular brawl was too long for what it was, like especially considering how dark it was. Like I think, like the way the way the mad, the way the brawl started was cool and chaotic, and the way it ended was good. But like, just it went on and on during the entrance, and they kept hitting each other in the head with chairs, which I get squeamish about. Like, and it was it just it felt, um, I don't know, a little bit unnecessary, a little bit redundant. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I, uh, but like the beginning and the end in the brawl were good. So I think if they had just cut out the middle, I think I would have liked it a little bit more. As it was, I think okay. I think I think at this point we've done it enough. <laughs> now we can move on yeah. to uh, to something uh, to something a little bit new. And did you have thoughts about the Jimmy Jacobs thing, or should we save that for the match? Like, well, I think that I think that Jimmy. Um, I think he, I think I mean it was fine. Like I get what they were doing. Like you know an, an ode to the hometown, but. He should have. Um, he should have been his his new character. I think the match would have been better if he was playing that character and Lacey was out there. I think he's he's more entertaining that way. Um, I, I I mean I I I guess I see what they were doing, but it I don't know. I don't think it really passed the smell test as far as like being a good idea. It wasn't terrible so, or anything, but yeah. yeah. So I agree. Um, I thought this was fine. You know, again, uh, like par for this show, slightly above average. People that have long time through the years, listeners will know I'm not a huge fan of the million of four corner matches we've seen in Ring of Honor. They've, they've broken me down, Matt. And so I wasn't really expecting much from this either. 
But um, I thought this was a very standard Ring of Honor four-corner match. It was more, again, more of a build for the next night's Joe versus Daniels match than anything else. I, I, one thing I did think was um, slightly interesting about this was so often these four ways where they are building up a future match, they'll do the thing where the two guys that are going to have a future match, they barely interact with each other in the four where they give you just a little taste to kind of whet your appetite. But maybe because Joe and Daniels have wrestled each other so much already, they did not hold back. Like they have two extended sequences, extended sequences for each other. And Daniels actually gets a direct pin over Joe to end the match. Granted, that's after Adam Pierce gives Joe a low blow. So that kind of protects Joe. But, you know, praise like notes on commentary. This is like, Daniels has finally pinned Samoa Joe in Ring of Honor. This is like the first time. So that was a kind of a neat thing where, you know, they, for once, you know, you're building up a feud in the four-way, but you're giving you a lot of that feud in the four-way and actually kind of a somewhat significant result from it. Um, and Joe and Daniels' sequences were the usual solid stuff. It's not always thrilling, but it, it's usually pretty good. Uh, I really liked like the, that one late match exchange where they're throwing strikes and Daniels is like throwing body blows. I, I thought that I, I like that. Um, unfortunately, the most noteworthy spot they had though, which Dave Meltzer, we mentioned that, uh, mentioned it on the top of the show where Daniels does his usual springboard back elbow and he completely slips off the ropes and falls. Which is very- crazy because like you, that's like Daniels is a guy that never botches. Yeah. Like he is just so polished. It's, it was like, that's how you know for sure there was something with the ropes because yeah. the one guy that you will never see do that is Christopher Daniels. You're exactly right. Like Daniels is such the consummate professional. Like it became, they turned into a story, but it was such a big deal. Remember like a year or two ago in AEW when he like botched the best moonsault ever because it happens so infrequently. It was like, Oh shit. Daniels can't do a move one time, you know? Exactly. And and so, yeah, so many years earlier, the fact that you see something he's done a million times and he just completely slips eats shit as some might say, (laughs) You know, that was something. Uh, Pierce in this match mostly just does his usual Adam Pierce shtick, but I actually felt like he was pulling, trying like to pull out all his, I mean, he is not a Ring of Honor moves guy. He does not fit in with that. I think everyone would admit that, even Pierce. But I thought he was pulling out like every cool move he could in this context. He, he did a nice spinning heel kick. He did his second rope elbow drop. I think he did a pretty cool top rope diving headbutt where it's less of a jumping one, more of just a falling one. He did a big running power slam. Like I thought he was trying to like impress even from a move, just a pure moves with a Z standpoint. Uh, The guy felt a little bad for this match though was Jimmy Jacobs because this was his hometown. He got a nice reaction. He started the match with a little offense. And then shortly after that, it becomes clear. He is the low man on the totem pole in this match, which I guess part of you could say, yeah, he should be, although I would say he should be below Adam Pierce. But like of all the people in the match, he is the most person to most recently have held a Ring of Honor title. He was a former tag champ and he really is treated like more of a jobber. Like uh, he takes a beating from Daniels and Pierce before he makes the hot tag to Joe, because as is often the case in these four ways, the wrestlers decide they'd rather work it like a tag than a than a four way. And then even there, Jimmy doesn't get to get to make a big comeback. He his comeback comes basically because Pierce and Daniel start having an hour long in ring argument about what who is doing like the right the better job of kicking Jimmy Jacobs' ass. And then he hits Daniels with a spear and tags out. And then how Jimmy like gets written out of the match at the end is he goes for a big dive to the floor and Daniels and Daniels just moves out of the way. And Jimmy crashes and burns and we never see him again. And I just felt like the whole match, apart from maybe the very start, like he really 
did not come off as good the way this match was booked. I felt like he didn't need to win this match, but come on, man. It's Detroit. Give him a little bit of shine. But if if he had but, been with Lacey and like done that character that he did in the Jay Lethal match, I think he could have had a little bit more attention and shine in the match. And he could have like played a more interesting role, even if he was still beat up a lot. But I'm interested in what you think, because I, I feel like sometimes we like – because I, I, I think I, I have less of a tolerance for these four ways than you, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I was expecting from nothing from this, so I thought it was not bad. And you'll be like, oh, this wasn't good, Trevor. And then sometimes I'll be like, this wasn't good at all. And you'll be like, Trevor, you just don't like this just because you're, you're, you're biased against four ways. So are, are we on the same page on this one? Is this one slightly above average but nothing special? Or did, did you like this more or less? Do I really make that accusation? Um, no, no. I, I, I'm just spicing the shot, man. I'm, I'm exaggerating. I, 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 no, I, I pretty much am on the same page as you. I thought this was solidly entertaining for what it was, but nothing memorable at all. I do think that you know sometimes in these four ways, Joe kind of leans back a little bit. He doesn't really put in yeah. his full effort. I think that he put in more effort than I expected in this match. I think that he had, like, especially on his, like, hot tag, like, I feel like he had a lot of fire, and he was, like, screaming, and, like, jazzing up the crowd, and, like, his strikes were, were on point. So I think that Joe had a pretty good night, even though he wasn't going for, like, a top-tier Samoa Joe match. I think that Pierce, like you said, was a little bit more serious than he was in that other four-way that we saw him in, um, uh, you know, at Glory by Honor. I think the crowd was pretty good for the match. They definitely were more into the Joe versus Daniel stuff than the, uh, than the New Jersey crowd where they had that match at, um, in the summer of 2005. Um, so I think in that sense, it was a pretty entertaining. I don't think it, I think it didn't feel too long. Sometimes these four ways feel like they drag a little bit. Um, I think what helped was Pierce versus Jacobs and then Joe versus Daniels felt like two totally different matches and like the tonal change, you know, I don't think it was a problem. I think that it actually like just made it a little bit more interesting to watch. And then they sort of settled into like almost that tag match with, with Daniels and Pierce getting, uh, beating up Jacobs for a while until, until they all started fighting each other. And I think that, you know, that provided enough like sequence changes to make the match flow a little bit and be just more entertaining. But yeah, they weren't going for anything special. Like this was definitely a match to set up the singles match between Joe and uh, and Daniels the next night. They made a big deal out of the fact that Daniels has finally pinned Joe in ROH. Um, you know, I think the one thing is Daniels and Joe were having these, like, super entertaining matches in TNA and, like, doing all this dynamic stuff, and these matches just seemed a little bit less dynamic. Um, I'll be curious to see what their match the next night is like, but they're, clearly it seemed like Joe... Styles and Daniels were saving their best stuff, at least when it came to each other, for TNA at this point. Yeah, and, and I do feel like we, we – I think we really started knowing this, noticing this a few shows ago, but we are definitely, like you were kind of saying, in the Joe – is not giving you full he's pacing himself in his career certainly in some points at least in ring of honor stage of his career where especially something like on a double shot where he's not put in a position for one to have like a big match on the on both halves of the double shot and i think we're gonna see a lot of matches like this before he's now seen a few where he's in a tag or a four-way where he's only comes in for limited spots and when he does tag in He's really intense and is trying hard and going these big, fast, intense flurries of his usual offense, and it's fun. But we're get we're gonna get less of just like really good, hard, intriguing performances. I think like singles performances 
from Joe the way we're used to, the way we were spoiled when he was champ, I think. Yeah, um, So then we go backstage for intermission, where Dave Prezak is joined by Claudio Castagnoli. Uh, Prezak thinks Claudio got screwed tonight. Claudio agrees. He demands a rematch. Prezak says he'll try to talk to Nigel McGuinness later in the show. Something we do not see that happen during intermission, but comes up in The Observer. Dave wrote, uh, Ring of Honor ran a contest for two tickets to WrestleMania during intermission, and boy, did that get booed. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's funny. Like, you never know. Sometimes sometimes WWE occasionally in the right city, like, some certain mentions would get cheered, but obviously a lot of times it would get booed. Like, I would think if anything would kind of get the fans going, it would be, hey, like, two tickets to WrestleMania, like, even if you're not a huge WWE fan, so I, I like that. The, I mean, I don't like, but it is it is funny. I also but, think uh, in this era, there were, like, spurts where WWE, like, was putting on good shows and pay-per-views yeah. and stuff, and then there would be spurts where it was bad. And, like, whereas versus now, where I think that ROH-type fans, it's just always bad, <laughs> WWE, yeah. in, in 2022. But, like, there would be there they would have good runs from time to time. They wouldn't last super long. But I think late two thousand five was one of the less good periods for WWE, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. Early two thousand five um was not so bad. Um, except for, you know, certain things. The Muhammad Hassan stuff was, was pretty bad. But um <laughs> but um but yeah, I, I uh, so that that could have something to do with like when they're booed and when they're not booed, you know? Yeah. Um, this is the first match back after intermission. Uh, Daisy Hayes defeated Allison Danger via pinfall in three minutes, 24 seconds after hitting a, what a praise that calls a modified Daisy cutter, uh, which was her finisher. So now I'm going to ask you about the match, but I guess first I, I should point out this was n- not a historical match for Ring of Honor, but a historical weekend. I guess praise mentioned this on commentary that, uh, Two days after this, this was a this was a uh, a double shot weekend for Ring of Honor, in that they're running Detroit on a Friday, uh, Chicago on a Saturday. But in Chicago on Sunday, some of the wrestlers like Danger and Hayes uh, were were they were taping the very first two Shimmer shows. What you know, our friends, you know, uh, at Shimmer Herstory, they cover a great podcast that covers uh, Shimmer. You should absolutely listen to, but. This was actually like a big weekend in that sense for women's wrestling because it was about to begin. And, you know, they almost kind of present this as a, uh, like kind of a shimmer offer match. And Prezak kind of talks on Lenny and Prezak on commentary talk about, you know, how women's wrestling doesn't always get its due as serious women's wrestling in the U.S. And I thought it was really funny, Matt, because they're kind of talking about this and selling this really good new women's wrestling product. And it's a three minute women's match. Like, in a, like, like they're talking about the solution to a problem while they're commentating over part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's, I mean, like, unfortunately, there's nothing to say about the match because it's so yeah. short, but like, yeah, I mean, I guess just, I guess it just proves, it's, it's, it's a proof of, um, of, um, concept in that, like, this is why we need Shimmer. <laughs> you know, like, um, it sort of feels like something WWE would have done at the time. Um, uh, just ROH just never really uh, got the got the memo on women's wrestling, but yeah. I'm glad they at least promoted the existence of Shimmer. And I think you know, you know, by selling the Shimmer DVDs and stuff, I think they did help Shimmer in that way. You know, I guess they were considered like sister promotions, um, so that's good. But yeah, I mean, they should have just had a match. Like, why not? Like, let them have like a, an actual match. Um, that would have been cool. I also noticed they didn't shake hands. Which, um, which, so that shows it really isn't a shimmer match. One nice thing (laughs) I will say about the match. 
it was nice to see an ROH women's match without Gabe on commentary talking about how cute they are. <laughs> he didn't even do a run in this time. Now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there, like you said, there is not much to say about a three minute match. Uh, I, I thought it was like the work was always smooth, but there's no botches and they were, they were trying hard, but there's only so much you can do in three minutes. And that kind of brings me to my, what I wanted to say about this match. And, uh, I talked about how I wanted to say something after the student match, and I, but I would bring it up later. This is the time because we've talked about this before, but it, it's worth repeating. And I feel like this is the show where it really came to a head, which is one thing about Gabe's booking is you can like, it, it, he's interesting in that whenever he doesn't have faith in something, you really know because he almost always, if it, it, we've seen, sometimes it's not with, with, with like tryout matches for new guys, but some, we've seen a lot of like five, six minute tags, four ways, scrambles with, with, you know, new guys that haven't worked in Ring of Honor before. We've seen a lot of five or less minute women's matches. We've seen a lot of five or less student matches. And they're usually almost always in the tour spots on, on a card, which are the second match on the show, which is, you know, like the earliest you can be without getting, the opener, which is actually kind of a, a nice spot and an important spot on the show, or the first match after intermission, which is kind of another not great spot because you got people that are late coming back from the merch table or doing whatever they need to do, and you know crowds kind of filing back and getting settled in again. And on one hand, I get it because Ring of Honor, as people like to joke, it was a DVD product. They always like to do that game impression. Um, you know, it was, it was built on like, you couldn't just have things that were decent, that built for the future, future. You needed something, you needed each show to be good enough to warrant a 15 to $20 purchase. So I get Gabe's emphasis on each show needing to be like, not quite all killer, no filler, but not far from that. But the problem I have is like, in, in the, in the sense of trying to guarantee your shows are going to be as good as they can be, or, or, or not as good as they can be, but they're not going to have these huge flaws. I get the idea of, Every time you're not sure of something, if it's a student match, if it's just new guys trying out, if it's a women's match during this stage of women's wrestling in the U.S. Although, quite frankly, there were some good U.S. indie women's wrestlers at this point, as Shimmer, her story would document. Um, I get doing five minutes or less. I, I, I get that because if the worst thing happens, if the crowd turns on, if the match isn't good, no one's going to walk away with a sour taste about them about in their mouth about a, t- of a wrestling show because of one bad five minute or less match. But the problem is, like you you don't risk much, but you never gain much either. Cause there's only so good a five minute wrestling match can be most of the time. Like we recently saw that it was that Kimikaze Jason blade tag match. We both agreed by the standards of like five or six minute tag matches. It was pretty good. Like they hit a lot of cool spots. They, they worked hard. They did all they could to do that match. Didn't really raise their stock. No one's going to remember that match in the future. Like, can you remember any match we've seen in ring of iron? Like anything that's like five minutes or less, that honestly like really helped a career or is like really well remembered. Like, I don't think you can. Nope. And, and, and I just feel like it's so much filler. Like, like it almost feels like, and I know this isn't true that someone is forcing Gabe to book these matches. He has no faith in. And so he's trying to mitigate the harm being like, okay, I'll book them, but I'll book them short. But it's like, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure this Gabe is in charge of, booking all the talent setting up the matches. So I, I feel like if you don't have faith in the students or the women or the trouts, 
don't put them on the show. Like I would much rather have you, if you put on one risky match a show, put on one women's match with two women you believe in or two students you believe in or two newcomers you believe in and give them 10 minutes. And if they fail, don't book them again. And if you don't think they can, there's a good chance they can actually make use of 10 minutes, then you shouldn't be booking them on your shows to begin with. Like I, it's just, it's such a weird booking pattern. And the fact that we got two matches like that on this show together that were very much of that ilk, it just really brought it to a head with me where I was like, I'm so tired of these five minute or less matches where clearly Gabe is just like, yeah, this probably won't be good. So I'm going to make sure it doesn't hurt the show by giving it zero chance. I do agree with you, but I've got some bad news. It's not changing <laughs> in the, no, in the no. for a very long time in the stuff that we're going to be reviewing. And, and, you know, it's not saying again, that hurts the show. It just doesn't also benefit the show. Like, um, I've only, like all these five minute matches, like they're just a fog. And I feel like maybe it bothered me a little bit more this time where I, I feel like if you just drop in and watch one or two ring of honor shows or occasionally it wouldn't have bothered you. But the fact that we've watched all of them in order again, from the beginning, like we've seen so many of these matches now. And I, I, I tried to think the other day, I was like, how many hours of my life? have I wasted watching like three to five minute, like nothing ring of honor matches that weren't even like allowed to be good or bad. And I just thought it's gotta be hours and hours. Cause I've watched all these at least more than once now. And I was just like, of all the things wrestling has caused me to waste in like all the part ways wrestling has maybe waste parts of my life. Like I can't, there's no way I can justify that. <laughs> and, I wonder how Prazak felt about this. Like, was he grateful that they were promoting shimmer or was he like, Come on, like let's do a match. <laughs> well, it's interesting too because I forget if this was a podcast I heard or someone on Twitter. It might have been Dave Bixen Span. I'm not even sure. I think it might have been Dave Bixen Span during the the tweeting during the uh, Dave Prezak uh, Indie Wrestling Hall of Fame. But I believe he said that he thought that at least for a time or something that the first Shimmer DVD was the best selling DVD from the Ring of Honor website that wasn't Joe versus Kobashi. Or one of the better ones, like the first one. So wow, nice. I don't know how much is Ring of Honor promotion, but clearly at the beginning, at least on the first show, there was definitely interest in people that had a desire to get a product that wasn't what Ring of Honor was giving them. You know, like the idea of something that is closer to Ring of Honor for women's wrestling, which it's fine that Ring of Honor couldn't give them that. Yeah, but, I mean, I mean, it's in on on the other hand, it's also good in that like Shimmer existing was a big deal, yeah. and it's like yeah. you know it was very a positive thing for pro wrestling. But yeah, it's crazy how long it took them to actually just like do an actual women's match. Yeah, and uh, that brings us to Austin Aries, a score to the ring by Jade Chung. I wonder how Roderick Strong feels defeating Alex Shelley, scored to the ring by Jimmy Raven, Prince Nana. Via pinfall after 14 minutes, 38 seconds, using a schoolboy after he shoved Shelly into Prince Nana when Prince Nana interfered. Um, so, Matt, going to the Observer, I mentioned earlier how there was a segment on the show that got cut out that I wish we could have seen. This is the segment uh, Dave wrote in the Observer from Live Reports. Prince Nana called Detroit a shithole, thinking it would get heel heat. Well, usually it would, but in this case, everyone cheered him. Shelly, who is from Detroit, teased he was mad, but then said he was ashamed to be from Detroit. And um, there was a some live review of the show, uh, I think from 411 Mania. Let me see if I can find the person just to give them credit, because I always like to uh, 
give credit. Brad Garoon, who did a review of the show for 411 Mania, and he was at the show at the time, he said, Shelley cut a pretty funny promo turning on his hometown fans before the match that was cut from the DVD. So that's another thing. Wish we could have seen it. Match. This was a rematch from a, you know, a fairly significant match, the big world title match, Aries versus Shelley at a Manhattan Ma'am. What do you think about the rematch? Well, first of all, I wonder if, like, the reason they cheered was because, like, these were all, like, fans from, like, the suburbs who didn't like coming into the city. Like, like, I'm trying to figure out why else, why else you might cheer somebody running down your hometown. Um, I mean, it's, I guess the, the snide thing would be is to say is it's Detroit, but I have to imagine there's Detroit pride. Yeah, like, I mean, Detroit, which, 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 Detroit's cool. Like, what's, what's wrong with Detroit? Um, well, but, I mean, I guess the auto industry collapsing and a lot of people have been snide about, you know, the Flint water thing. You, you know, Michigan is Detroit is not Flint, but I know, but I'm just saying Michigan as a whole and Detroit, not just Flint. I know they're not the same, but like there's been so it's been a rough couple decades for them, Matt, I, I believe. Even as a Canadian, I've heard I've heard things. My sources have told me. Yeah, but I still feel like when your city is rough, like it's. You know, there's there's a, an element of pride in that too. You know. Yeah. No, but, you're 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 right. Um, um, and I feel know, like 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 being condescending being case. condescending about that is something that outsiders do. You know, mm-hmm. like oh, you live in a shithole. You know, versus like yeah. like you know, like no, we have grit. Anyway, I, I don't know. But no, I agree. I, I live in in the, my city. I live in like, well, I came out of like the bad part of of the city, and like there are people in in that neighborhood to this day when I'm in there. Like they have stickers that it's it was an area called Rutland, which is suitable. And there are people that have sticker bumper stickers that say like straight out of Rutland. Like like yeah, I I so I completely get what you're saying that like a lot of times even if your city is kind of run down seedy, yeah. Yeah. Y- you almost turn that into a point of pride. But like, there's also I a lot of cool it. culture in, in the city. Like I mean like you know, I like Alex Shelley was repping some cool like like indie like sort of like indie punk like um yeah. Detroit bands at the time. I mean, this was an era when the White Stripes were big and like, you know, obviously Eminem um came from Detroit and like what Kid he was Rock, playing, obviously um, great one of the greats. <laughs> B- BRMC was the band that had done um Alex Shelley's theme music, uh the yeah, Six Black Shotgun, Rebel so. Motorcycle Club. Yeah. yeah, and that was a Detroit band. So like there's like cool yeah. culture as part of it and obviously a lot of history there. So anyway, I don't know. I don't I'm not you know, I'm not from Detroit. I don't want to start like speaking like I'm have any authority on that. But it just made me wonder if these people booing were like not real Detroiters. But maybe I'm wrong. You see, listener, you tell me what the deal was. With now, that. maybe now who's condescending? They're not real Detroiters, says Matt Forrest. If you were one of the 425 people at this show, Matt is calling you. Oh, I'm just talking about the people who were booing. I bet you not everybody <laughs> booed. I bet you not everybody booed. But um, anyway, um, as far as uh, – or I guess they were not booing, cheering, cheering. They were when, cheering, yeah. yeah when, you you wanted them to when, boo. When he shat on uh, Detroit. But anyway, um, as far as the match um, – I think it was mostly good. Like it wasn't as athletic as the uh as the um Manhattan Mayhem match. You know, they they weren't like going as fast. They weren't doing as much, but I do think there was more hate to it. Like, you know, it wasn't like they were there was like a hate-filled brawl or anything, but mm-hmm. they were like playing their characters, especially Shelley. You know, it's interesting cuz Shelley obviously is from Detroit, but he was not you know, shy about being a heel here. You know, they had like a snot rocket battle, and Aries's snot rocket was much more protracted and exaggerated than Shelley's. I will say that. Um, <laughs> well, he's not experienced at it like Shelley. Yeah, Shelley's was more standard, but Aries had more impact. That's what I think. Um, the, there was, 
I, I, I did think it was funny that they said the match had relaxed rules. And it was like, oh, so the ref's going to let things go. And it's like, t- none of the stuff that they're doing would be to get to disqualification anyway, ever. Like, at one point, Prezak says that since there's relaxed rules, the ref is going to let closed fists go. And it's like, yeah, has, has there been an, a disqualification in a non-pure title match in ROH for a closed fist ever? And, and here's the, here's or any the wrestling company? The, the, he doesn't let the close fist go. He's constantly yelling at Aries about, and at one point he physically stops Aries from throwing a closed fist. That's right. He in no way lets them go. That's right. Like, I wonder if the relaxed rules thing was like added after. I don't, I don't remember, but, um, I, um, but yeah, as far as the match, you know, like, like there, I want, by the way, um, so Nana had a big Ghana flag and he was like waving it and they put it in the corner. And like for a minute I was like, is this a flag match? <laughs> And Relaxed that, rules flag match. And that made me think, like, just this is a tangent, but, like, isn't flag match, like, the stupidest gimmick ever? Like, <laughs> the idea of, a, like, like the gimmick, the flag match is, like, the winner gets to wave their flag, right? That's the, that's the way, <laughs> like, you can do that anyway. You don't need to win a flag, like, you, if you lose the flag match, you could still wave your flag. Who's stopping you? Just wave the flag. I, I don't know. And, like, like I, I don't know. <laughs> I was about to say maybe it should be the loser can never wave a flag for the rest of their lives. But then I th- I just started thinking, how many times in my life have I ever waved a flag? It's got to be less than three. Like even that wouldn't be a good stiff. Probably when I was a little kid, like I maybe like waved a little flag, and like it, you know what I mean? Like at like yeah, some yeah, sort of at event. a parade or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like but like not not since then. I've certainly never. I don't think I've ever waved a big flag like Hulk Hogan <laughs> does sometimes in, his, in those old like shows. You know what I mean, Matt? There's a few times in your life you have, at least in front of me, you've ever been more adorable than the precocious way you just said, I don't think I've ever waved a big flag. <laughs> that was the most adorable thing precocious. you have ever said. Hmm. So like, I, I just, I, it was almost like you were hopeful you were going to get the opportunity. Like, like I would, you know, if anyone would give me the chance to wave a big flag. You no, know? I do not want to wave a flag. <laughs> that, that, that ain't so me. you don't want to be in a flag match. That ain't me, man. I, <laughs> Now, I would undermine the whole concept of the flag match because I would win the flag match and then I'd say, man, if you want to wave the flag, you go ahead because I ain't doing it. That's, <laughs> that's what I would say if I won a flag match. <laughs> Am I right that that's a stupid gimmick though? No, no, uh, uh, Matt, you couldn't be more right. Like the flag match, like not as is stupid from like the wrestler psychology of why would they care that much? Like – I guess, you know, that dates back to the 80s where wrestling was so much more – and the world in some ways, although it still is, with so much more like a jingoistic. patriotic – yeah, jingoistic, xenophobic type thing. But like even in the 80s, was that like a big thrill to be like, oh man, Hulk Hogan's waving the flag? Like when – even if you were a kid, you would rather just see him like pose? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, but if you're wrestling Nikolai Volkov, you definitely don't want him to wave that flag, according to <laughs> according to according to '80s wrestling logic. I'm not, you know, saying yeah. one way or another, but like, um, I think that's 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 the but anyway. Alex Shelley versus Austin Aries. <laughs> um, uh, I thought they had a pretty good match. I, you know, I think you know Rave and Nana were there, so there was you know a lot of heel stuff going on, and and Aries would do like dives into all three of them. And then there was a point where uh, Aries was beating Shelly around ringside and the crowd was chanting, over here. And unlike Danielson, Aries actually gave the people what they want um, until they kept doing it. And then he was like, I got to I got to keep going with the match. Uh, he sort of actually said that to them. But, um, the you know, Shelly, you know, always does some cool mat move. He does like a bridging hammerlock thing that I thought was pretty cool. Um, 
eventually, Air, uh, Shelley really starts working on Aerie's arm, and it slows the match down a lot, and it kind of gets a little bit dull at that point. But, you know, they keep with it. And, you know, he's selling the arm and he goes for the border city stretch and Aries reverses that into the fish hook. And this is another example where the rules are not that relaxed because Sinclair makes him break the fish hook. I feel like relaxed rules should at least allow for the fish hook, right? And, and Lenny Leonard says at this point, and, you know, I love Lenny Leonard, but he says at this point, the ref let the fish hook go, go to five, almost to five because it's relaxed rules. The ref does that. Brian Daniels' catchphrase. Is I have till five or free. A ref just does that all the time with any illegal hold. Like the idea that somehow relaxed <laughs> rules is why he instituted a five. Like what? I don't know why they were trying to act like the most regular rule abiding match up till the finish was like they were trying to find ways to point out this is why this is clearly an example of the relaxed rules we're seeing in this match. It's like, yeah, this is the most normal match we have ever seen. They should have just said nothing about it. It would have made the match better. Yeah. Like, honestly, yeah. like a better match if they hadn't. Oh, 100% like, agreed. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the finish is convoluted. Chung gets in the ring. Sinclair is distracted by her. And then Shelly gets Aries in a full Nelson. And Nana gets in the ring to attack him. And then Chung does a much weaker than normal low blow on Nana. And then Aries runs Shelly into Nana's head and gets the roll up. I thought that was a pretty bad finish. But I thought the match was mostly like at least kind of good like you know they're good wrestlers i i i feel like they they could they could certainly have done much better um without all the the gaga around but like mm. and, and i don't think they were doing their best but i still think you know these two are just so talented that it was a pretty good match I think you saying it was mostly kind of good with like a, a almost a question in your voice i think you summed up exactly in that tone and those words how I felt about this match. I think I enjoyed it. Like I thought it was fairly good. Like I really do feel that way. And I, I feel like kind of the way I felt and you, you touched on it is first off in some way it, it's interesting. Cause I feel like this match was a little bit worse than the Aries Shelley match from Manhattan ma'am, but it didn't feel, it didn't feel as worse as it probably was. If that makes sense in the sense that I remember that our review of that match, I think we agreed that like, it was a very good match or a pretty good match on that show, but it felt like they weren't wrestling it like the epic that the fans wanted to be in its place on the card for that first match p- paying off like a month long build up should have been like they worked it more of like a undercard match and they weren't really going all out and going crazy excessive like you kind of should have on a match like that. And, but I feel like this time. They don't, they just, this is, they work at like just a good mid undercard match, but that's all I was expecting. And that's where it slotted in. So I was kind of like, well, this is what I'm expecting. I, I think my problem was other than, like you said, all the stuff with the, uh, the relaxed rules, which I completely agree with. And by the way, I think it's pretty clear. Another thing Ring of Honor does, uh, I think we've seen before, which is a thing I hate, which is the stip that the wrestlers do not use except at the very end because it's clear the stiff only exists to justify the finish. And like you were saying, in this case, the finish is near the very end of the match. Aries goes up for the 450 and Prince Nana grabs the leg of, of Aries in full view of the ref and the ref doesn't call for the DQ. And then Jay Chung gets in the ring. Nana gets in the ring. You know, they get shoved into it. And I feel like if it wasn't for that, nothing about this match justifies relaxed rules. But I almost feel like, I don't, and I, like you were saying, I don't know if this was 
added as a skip after the match, like in post-production on the commentary or not. But I, I really just felt like the only reason they said relaxed rules was just to justify why Todd Sinclair did not call for a disqualification. Um, but yeah, the, the thing I, I, that I thought brought this match down a bit, I, I actually really liked, um, I not really like, but I enjoyed the first half. And like you were saying, when Shelly works over Aries arm, he like lasers in on it and Aries only gets these little comebacks for the rest of the way to, until the finish. And it really slows the match down. And I, I like, you know, mat work and limb work, but so often in wrestling, it's like the first half of the match is the more slower paced, deliberate limb stuff. And then it builds to a more exciting first half. And instead this match, it was like it, the first half of the match was kind of medium pace the beginning of a match i thought man this match wraps up another level it's going to be end up really good and then the second half it just it slows down it's weird it's like the it's they wrestled the second half of the match like i've seen so many matches wrestled the first half of a match it was almost like they took the first halves of two different matches and never gave you the second half of either of those matches. They just stitched the first half together of two different matches, but yet there still was good work in them. And much like Salvin hour early in the night, I thought Austin Aries selling of his arm was really good. I thought this was some of the best selling we've seen from Austin Aries in ring honor so far. It didn't remind me of like a relative that had a really bad injury, but still pretty good selling. And uh, overall, yeah, good match. I so, um, but- I, I'm a little bit disappointed that Shelly and Aries, Never did their um their real blow off, you know what I mean? Like like Shelly and Jacobs had this like really good submission match or I quit match at Joe versus Punk Two. And like Shelly should have had a match of that intensity against Aries at some point. And they never did it. And I it would probably would have been really good. Yeah, I don't think these guys, at least in Ring of Honor, ever had that match that just felt like they were trying to have that epic of like, this is going to be uh, like our definitive airy Shelley match. It was more just like all these good little performances against each other. But, uh, immediately after the match, uh, uh, after the finish, that is rave jumps Aries and he and Shelley beat Aries down. Nana joins in, but Aries fights back until abyss marches to the ring and lays out Aries with a big boot. All four put the boots to Aries until AJ Styles, Matt Seidel, and Daisy Hayes run to the ring. We get a big AJ chant. Aries brawls with Shelly to the back, and we cut to the start of the tag match. So again, another kind of a weird cut um, where Rave gets a shower of toilet paper. Probably the first real, like the biggest sh- like th- collection of it thrown in them so far, we've seen so far. And uh, the crowd even chants toilet paper. And I will say, like you kind of mentioned this before about this being a good crowd. Like, for a first-time market, they were trying, like, Hillbilly Jesus for BJ and the opener. They're throwing a ton of toilet paper. Like, this crowd was pretty knowledgeable about Ring of Honor, you know, for a market that had never gotten Ring of Honor before. And that brings us to the match, which bled right from the last one. AJ Styles and Matt Seidel defeated Abyss and Jimmy Rafe in 14 minutes, 17 seconds, when Seidel pinned Rafe after he hit the moonsault belly-to-belly superplex. Uh, this was a strong, you know, nothing I so far on the night I would say was even very good. Like, but I would say this is my favorite match of the night so far. Like really strong, just solid, good, you know, three and a half stars maybe or something. Um, 
this match did the structure that I thought was weirdly missing from the last match, where the faces do cool stuff in the first few minutes to really get you excited. Then the heels, particularly Jimmy Rave, really slow down the middle of the match, which is kind of Jimmy Rave's thing, you know, some cheating. He, uh, you know, does the Rave does his usual very basic, nothing flashy heel offense where he's like, punches in the corner, chin lock, stuff like that. And it gets you to the point where you're like begging, like I want to see the baby faces in control again so I can see more cool stuff. And then unlike the Ari Shelley match, they give you that. They give you another final few minutes where they do more cool stuff and then the finish. So I thought, thought that really is what made this match better. You know, Side Allen styles are two of the best of their era for doing kind of incredible athletic things. Styles in particular did, did a, does a crazy spot in this match where Abyss bends down to backdrop AJ. AJ jumps up on his shoulders and then from there, like, fall drops into a Rana. Really cool. I thought the most interesting wrinkle to this match, though, Matt, was Abyss. I thought so far in his Ring of Honor tenure, they've booked him in this limited appearances as an absolute monster. You know, like, he's just destroying people, even, you know, s- students. But even, like, Jack Evans, he's just squashing them. Everyone's just reacting like he's the most dominant big man out there, which is really cool. And something interesting that Ring of Honor doesn't do normally. And Seidel kind of does that in this match. Like, he does a spot where he goes to crossbody Abyss, and Abyss just stands still, and he bounces off of him, which was fun. But AJ Styles wrestles this match, and he wrestles Abyss like he's any other wrestler he would ever work with. Like he doesn't like really sell big for him. He doesn't really defer to him. He doesn't really treat him like a big man. Matt late in the match, he gives abyss the goddamn styles clash. He doesn't hook the, the arms with his legs, but he gives him the styles clash. He, he gives abyss a spine, the spinal tap. And then, uh, he has to get abyss has to get saved from the pinfall by Jimmy rave doing a crazy running knee, which we can talk about in a little bit that, really catches AJ and seems to really legit hurt him. Um, And it it was entertaining to see Abyss, you know, kind of for the first time in Ring of Honor, really work more equal and do kind of more crazy stuff and and take more bumps. But I also felt like part of the fun of Abyss is he's been so dominant and it felt weird and like a random match for AJ to kind of almost eat him up a little. And I I really felt like AJ should have, treat him a bit more like a monster, maybe not done so much shit to him. But anyway, other interesting thing I, I liked is they've also portrayed Abyss as this big monster. And this match, he just follows Jimmy Rave's lead and does like very cerebral, deliberate healing stuff. Like he does the, I'm going to clap my hands together to pretend I made a tag. And he like grabs the wrestler's legs when they're hitting the ropes on he's on the outside. Like he wrestles this, like, you know, he's the monster in this match, but he's the monster who's taking big AJ Styles bumps and, and um doing old school, like Southern eighties Memphis tag tropes, but overall fun, enjoyable match. I, um, I like this match a little bit less than you. I still liked it. Um, but I will disagree with you about the AJ abyss dynamic. Um, because, at this point, Styles and Abyss had a history together. They in had, TNA, yeah. Yeah, multiple memorable matches together. They main invented a pay-per-view together at this point already. It would have been, I feel like, a weird and um, I don't know, inconsistent to suddenly have Styles be like, how can I solve this conundrum of this monster? Like when they've he's beaten Abyss, they've had <laughs> like even matches against each other. You know what I mean? Like it's like they have history. And I feel like yeah, that's it's, a good point. It's better that they acknowledge that versus like Styles acting like Abyss is some like new mysterious challenge to him. 
Um, whereas it makes sense for these other guys who you know don't have that history with Abyss. It makes sense that Styles does a better job handling Abyss than anybody else does. Um, I love the beginning of this match. I love the end of this match. Um, or I like the end of this match, I should say. What I didn't like, I thought that things slowed down a bit and they kind of quieted the crowd a lot in the middle. But the thing I really didn't like was the hot tag. Um, they built on it for a while with Seidel taking a lot of punishment. And then uh, at one point, like, Seidel just gets a sudden backslide, then tags in Styles, which is fine because the crowd was hot for it anyway. But then they do that thing that is a pet peeve of mine where, like, almost instantly Styles ta- – I mean, Seidel tags back in. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. It doesn't seem like Ray Mars been doing that a, quite a bit lately on the shows we've been watching. Yeah. It's it's a pet peeve of mine. And, like yeah. – like, on the bright side, like in this defense, Styles was still doing most of the moves even after that. And but it was like it just like Seidel should have sold for a while longer. He was waiting yeah. to get out of the match. Like it was really like less. It felt like less than a minute later that he tagged back in. Like yeah. that's not a, a, a psychologically sound way to do a hot tag. So that that bothered me a bit. But I thought the beginning and the end were exciting, and I thought it was a good match. I um, and I also I liked the booking of Seidel getting the big win. I thought that you know he needed it. And I think that it, it worked. So I, I appreciated that too. And there was a nice chant for him at the end. So overall, it was good. I would say it was not my favorite match on the show so far. That still goes to the Strong and Evans versus um, Renaro and Collier match. But it was good. So the one last thing I wanted to mention about this match was the knee. So for those who haven't seen the match, very late in the match, you know, Rave does a move he's done a million times as one of his signature moves, the big kind of running knee, the the knee then the first like six months or a year he was in Ring of Honor, Gabe kept calling a shunning wizard even though it wasn't because he's not stepping off off someone else's knee. And he catches AJ really hard in the head. And you can if you watch the match after after it ends, that's the last part time AJ is involved in the match because Seidel beats Rave shortly right after it but the ref is like talking to aj for an extended period of time after that and aj is uh grabbing his face around the eye and it's because he really took really got hurt there and uh jimmy rave actually talks about this in the uh the great interview he does on honorable mention that i reference so often because it's good and rave you know there are very few wrestlers from ring of honor of this era that have done shoots that have gone into it and obviously Rest in peace, Jimmy Ray. But he talks about this match, and he he talks about this specific match, Matt. He says, um, this is, you know, a time where, you know, sometimes he and AJ didn't always get along. And he says AJ uh, got to this show late. Like, I forget if he said intermission or a little past intermission, but he got to the show late. And because of that, like, Rave and the other guys had already kind of plotted the, the big beats of the match out. So AJ comes, and Rave just tells him, like, all right, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. And AJ apparently did not like that, that he was doing that for AJ. And But, you know, Rave's point was like, look, you show up late. Like, we have to plan out the match. And so we we plotted out the match already. And, he, and, and Rave ends up saying, he says, people thought I did that to AJ on purpose, that need then, because we had this argument, like, you know, before the match. But Rave says, like, it was not purposeful. It was a complete accident. And it was interesting because you talked about before, Matt, about how the thought of the t- all the TNA guys, like Joe Daniels and Styles at this point, 
once TNA really came into play for them in a big way, that they all never worked as hard in Ring of Honor again. Jimmy Rave, when talking about this match, says he singles out this match as a match where he felt like AJ did not work as hard as he would in TNA. And he says that he agrees that, like, he says, I feel like AJ, when he came back on this last run, he did not work 100% when he was in Ring of Honor. And he says, I feel like Daniels and Joe did. Like, he disagrees with you on that point. He actually... And, and it's interesting because it just depends, it just it, depends on the match. And like interesting because this match to me was not an egregious example of AJ like not working that hard. I that's think what he, I was just going to say. Yeah. We've seen matches in the last few shows where it's like that. I think this match he worked pretty hard. I mean, obviously, you know, the the a participant will have a different perspective than some than yeah. a spectator, but just the way it seemed, you know, like just you know, like especially the stuff he did with Abyss. I felt like he worked harder with Abyss than he often does with the more just like ROH exclusive guys. I mean, this was a rough night for AJ because between that knee and early in the match where he and Seidel do those double dives and Abyss doesn't do a great job catching um, AJ and you can tell AJ is hurt from like a rough bump on the floor. Like it, this was not a good – he gave like, – you know, he took some bumps for Ring of Honor on this night. But yes. yeah, either way um, – And by the way, I'm not trying to say like that Joe – and Daniels like were like lazy or anything like no 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 I I, I know what you're saying and I hope the listeners know yeah not at all but just I, like I just do... like just like they're 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 picking their spots a bit more they're working a different you know in a different way it's you know they're not having their absolute best matches in Ring of Honor all the time you know Daniel I and mean, Daniels and Joe would still have really top notch matches in ROH in sub you know after this. You know, just yeah, it yeah. wasn't like the you know their best stuff against each other was in TNA though. Like at this point, it just was. <laughs> but but I, I agree too. Like I would disagree with Jimmy Rave on the idea of like Joe and Daniels always gave one hundred percent from this point on. Like, and I don't necessarily always think that's. But I think as a wrestler, sometimes when you're wrestling a full time career, you have to pace yourself, and there's ways you can still give really entertaining performances without going full bore. But I do agree with you. Like, and again, this I'm just like you. I don't mean this to disparage Joe or Daniels or at all. But like, they there were definitely shows uh, like like you said where they picked their spots and they were trying to entertain the fans, but they were not maybe going all out the way they did in their first couple of years in ring of honor. But either way, uh, we go backstage again, where Dave Prasak has found Nigel McGinnis, as he said he was going to, he tells Claudia, he tells Nigel that Claudio felt he was screwed tonight. And Prasak agrees with him. Uh, Prasak then informs Nigel that Claudio wants a rematch. Nigel says the only person who got screwed tonight is him. Claudio hit him with an iron tonight. Who brings an iron to the ring? I love Nigel. That was just this. He like he's lying about things that everyone knows it can't be true. He goes, "What kind of pure champion does that?" Nigel then calls Claudio cast cast o gonads, and he says he doesn't deserve another title shot. And if he wants to get one, it ain't going to be easy to earn it. Matt, out of curiosity, I looked up the next few shows. Um, there are three shows between this show and Final Battle where um, Claudio gets his tie- pure title rematch. On those three shows, Claudio loses twice and doesn't wrestle on the third one. So apparently it was easy to get. <laughs> um, Jim, Jim Cornette just felt differently from Nigel. It, it, exactly. So and that brings us finally to the Ring of Honor World Title Match main event, the match that they were not naked. Brian Danielson defense, successfully defended the title when he defeated Chris Saban via submission in 24 minutes, 
23 seconds when he made him tap to the stronghold. Um, a couple of notes before I throw it to you, Matt. The Observer wrote, there were some boring chants during this match, but overall, all reports said the crowd liked it by the end. I never heard the boring chants. I don't know about you. No, nope, I'll sometimes... some other things the crowd says, but not boring. Yeah. And then the other note was this This came uh, weeks later um, when Dave was writing about just Brian Danielson in general. Dave wrote, in one show a few weeks back, Danielson was supposed to win using a chicken wing. I believe it was the Detroit match with Chris Saban. But after watching two matches on, on the undercard based on working the arm, he asked to change the entire match to working the back and using a backbreaker as the finish, which also worked because he'd get heat for using Roderick Strong's move right before doing a match with strong. So I thought that was interesting because uh, just like not to give away too much to, from your review, but like Danielson wrestled the whole story of this match is kind of the setup for the strong match the next night. And he's yeah, doing tons of backbreakers. He wins with the stronghold, but I would have thought that was always the plan. And this is something I've heard. We've heard and talked about Danielson is a lot of wrestlers don't do this. Danielson oftentimes would wa- apparently watch the whole show and he would change his match based on what he had seen. So it's really interesting that he had a completely different idea. He was going to do the arm and the chicken wing. And then he just decides I got to change the whole thing because I'm not going to be the third match on the show about an arm. So again, just one of the million reasons why Danielson's one of the best wrestlers of all time. He's a genius. Yeah. I mean like the fact that he like, will see that and then be like, Oh, here's this idea that will make this match a million times better (laughs) than it would have been. And it is. Um, um, so like I said, Danielson, his, uh, he has the new short haircut, the facial hair, immediately changes the vibe. You could also really see how young he looks compared to now. Like, just like, yeah. he was just like a baby at this point, which is crazy considering how advanced he was. Um, but like, so as far as the crowd, at the very beginning, you hear a little battle in the crowd in the background because someone yells, TNA! And then someone else <laughs> yells, fuck TNA! And then someone else, ye- someone else yells, I like TNA! <laughs> and, th- and then someone else yells, they're both good! Which I thought was cute. Um, then we get a, a little "You're both awesome" chant, which I thought was adorable. Um, but yeah, like I, I, this was a good match. Like even even in some ways, very good because Danielson is awesome, and like it was you know pretty long. It was over twenty minutes, and it didn't feel long. It didn't drag. But I've never seen an ROH title match that was so obviously like secondary to the match it was setting up the next night. Yeah. Like, this was all about the strong match. The announcers talked about strong, I feel like, more than they talked about Saban. Like, I mean, it makes sense in the in the sense of, like, Saban is not a member of the ROH roster. So, like, in that way, I didn't mind it or anything. Like, I actually didn't mind it at all. Like, I, I, I found it, the whole thing pretty entertaining. But it was, this was really all about Danielson. He was leaning into his heelish, smug thing, you know, and then... You know, while Saban, you know, he went after Danielson's neck and they had some of that. But but really, like, the, the Saban offense was not super memorable. Like, it was fine. It was really all – the memorable stuff was all Danielson. Like, you know, being a heel, stomping Saban in the head while yelling to the crowd, hey, why don't you grow some teeth? But um, really the memorable stuff was him when he started working over Saban's back because – whereas Roderick Strong does lots of interesting backbreakers – Danielson just did the same basic backbreaker over and over and over and over and over again. And like, this is part of his genius. Like, it just becomes super entertainment. Yeah. I'm super, super entertaining. It it, it works so well because he's he's like, Roderick Strong has nothing on me. But it's like, 
I don't know if he's, you know, he's, he's knowingly doing that or not, but like, you know, the Charo Roderick Strong is he does a million backbreakers and Daniels is just doing the same most basic one over and over again. He's acting like, yeah, this is easy. And, <laughs> and Leonard goes on commentary. He may not use a thousand different ones like Roderick Strong, but he's going to use the same one a thousand times in this match. Yeah. And he basically does. He does at least like eight, I think. And, but it's like, it's not all like in a row. Like he'll do stuff in between and then just go right back to it. And every time he hits the backbreaker again, he'll get another smirk on his face. Like, haha, I'm doing that backbreaker again. <laughs> and, and then he, uh, you know, he even at one point does like a, a Sam Martino's, a Sam Martino style over the shoulder backbreaker, which Lenny Leonard calls an Argentinian backbreaker. Um, which I didn't know that's what it was called. But you okay. know what? It's a goddamn Canadian backbreaker. Okay. I'm a Canadian. I looked it up just to make sure. You will not. It's bad enough they're taking the Canadian destroyer. Now a lot of rest of people are just calling it the destroyer. This is our heritage. Right. Don't take it from me, Matt. I have so little. I need this. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. So he does a Canadian backbreaker, and um, you know, and then you know, say, you know, Saban gets some. He gets some hope spots. You know, like Danielson does get the chicken wing at one point, but Saban gets the rope, which I think is the first time that the chicken wing doesn't end the match when he actually does it. I don't remember if he even tried it against Roderick the week before. Um, but then you know, he save he wears out Saban with big forearms. Um, Saban goes for the springboard, and like a lot of other people on this night, he falls, but. Saban recovers, I think, pretty well because he, he he just immediately lands on his feet and hits a drop kick to the back of his head. I wonder if Danielson even realized that Saban didn't fall because his yeah. back was to him the whole time. So I think that was about as well recovered from a slip as you could possibly do. So it didn't really hurt the match that much. Um, but you know, Saban he gets his like arm hooking pile driver thing. He does the cradle. He uh, say uh, Danielson escapes the cradle shock, and then Danielson he 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 does a stronghold to get the tap out, which is perfect to set up the next night's match. Yeah. So like it was a very clever finish, a cleverly booked match, very entertaining, not meant to be something to be a standalone product. It's meant to set up the match the next night, which, you know, maybe if you're going to this show is not your favorite thing, but as far as the overall booking, I think it works really well. It's good development for Danielson's character. Um, and it was well, you know, psychologically sound. I thought it was, I thought it was, and I, I thought it was good. I thought it was very good. So I maybe like this match very slightly more than you, but we're basically the same. I thought this was the match of the night. I thought this was very good, but I, I, by that I would say like three and three quarter stars. I don't think it's quite. It's right below great. I, w- and, I, w- you know, I would for, say I would say I feel the same. That, that's that's three and, and a half, three and three quarters. You know, somewhere. And, and, and yeah, and I, I would say for most wrestlers, that's not that would be great, but like. I mean, great in terms of just you're happy you have that kind of performance. But Brian Danielson, you're almost like, that's it. But but I wasn't re- disappointed really with this match as I didn't remember it being like an amazing show stealer. But I completely agree about how – and again, I think this is the theme for the night. It really felt more like a really good like setup match for the real main show down the line, which again, a lot of the matches on the show had like kind of almost that that TV show before the pay-per-view vibe in, in where it's – it's matches that aren't really paper the top level quality that are going to set up what are going to be the matches you hope are the top level quality on the bigger show. But um, except in our just, things, except in our weights that set up matches still like twenty five minutes long. <laughs> yeah. um, I would say the strength and weakness of this match are the same thing, and it's it's that this match feels like a match Brian Danielson could have had with any wrestler in the like any pr- decent wrestler in the scene at this point, like on the good way, um, 
it's like we were talking about before at the start of the show with the promo, like Danielson is full in on the, on the persona he discovered with the Roderick strong match that show before he's just being a great dick. He's doing some of the same things he did on that last show, but he's got some new wrinkles. Like, yeah, like he's doing some of the stuff he did on the last show, like asking the crap they want to see him move again and then flip them off the handshake offer, but then slapping the guy instead. But he's also doing some new stuff. Like he's grinding his head into a, um, saving it and refusing to break in the corner. He's grabbing the ropes, doing an abdominal stretch, and he does it like perfectly like the way a great old school 80s, 90s heel would do, where it's very slow and deliberate and then like, just really grabbing it tightly. Um, so yeah, he's picking right where he left off, um, just being a joyous dick uh, character-wise. And it's another one of those matches where he really just dominates this match, both in like, he he takes a lot of this match you know, for, you know, you think a lot of times in indie wrestling, I feel like if you know a guy isn't like a regular, you get generous and you give them at least half the match, if not more, and kind of give them the shine. Like Danielson dominates a lot of this match. And he's, this is another one of those matches where he wrestles it with such confidence and polish for a guy's age. He and Saban are the same age. And, you know, Danielson's in his mid-20s at this point, yet it feels like, I, I've said this about other Danielson matches, this is one of those matches where it feels like he's like forty, a four, you know, a 30-year veteran, and he's, like, wrestling a guy way younger than him and just schooling him. It, it's so good um, in that sense. But the negative is the same thing. It's that part of the fun of wrestling, I think, isn't just great wrestlers doing what they do best. It's that... They're interacting. That's what makes matches different from each other. It's like, oh, these two wrestlers, how are they going to mix? How what, how are they going to react to what each of them bring to the table? And like I said, I felt like you, you mentioned that this match was more about Roderick Strong than it was about Chris Sabin. And I completely agree. That's a great way to put it. I I feel like, um, you know, Sabin doesn't get a ton of offense. When he does, he gets these little bursts, and it's neat offense because Chris Saban has neat offense, and Brian Danielson he sells well for it. But Saban really doesn't offer any personality here. He doesn't really show off any character or real like super passion. He doesn't really have an interesting style for Danielson to to, to bounce off of. Again, it really just feels like he could have wrestled this against another thirty guys. It would have been the same match on this night. And it's a good Brian Danielson match, but it's not a good Brian Danielson Chris Saban match, if that makes sense. I agree. And, I agree completely. That's all all true. And I like Chris Saban a lot. Yeah, and, and, and I almost felt bad for Chris Saban because, like, like you're saying, like I keep going back to this match was about Roderick Strong. That was basically it was him using Saban as an example. And I'm not this guy who thinks that the hometown wrestlers have to win in their hometown every time. But I think most of the time they should. And obviously you couldn't do that with Saban. But I thought if you look at this card, Jimmy Jacobs, Alex Shelley, and Chris Saban, all three of them, like they all didn't maybe get like, didn't quite have like in terms of how their matches were worked and how they were presented. I mean, even this one, which is a world title main event, all three guys were hometown guys in a new market. I felt like not, none of them really came off as super triumphant or you know like well this ain't aew and aew they really lean into that in roh it's mainly like cm punk and homicide (laughs) yeah uh, 
Although, although I mean, you would they clearly. I mean, you have to imagine they book Sam for the show with Detroit in mind, right? And you know, yes, I I, I wonder if that's also part of why she, you know, and if that's why they got Jimmy Jacobs to go back to his old gimmick, and maybe you know, even Shelly getting you know, Shelly's been so many tags lately, but getting a pretty big singles match. Like, I feel like they did try and do some things on the show with Detroit in mind, but then they just kind of had them all lose and not really. Get yeah, really well, dumb. I think I think when they booked the Saban versus Danielson match, they didn't realize what direction they were taking the Danielson character and that whole arc with Strong. So I think that's part of maybe why Saban didn't quite get the featured spot that you know. I mean, it was still a featured spot, but you know what I mean. Like he didn't get yeah. to have the kind of match that was about him um, the way it maybe otherwise would have been. Yeah, um, and I also think a little bit of Ring of Honor history. I believe. This is the first time that Brian Danielson's final countdown theme was allowed to play through until that the final countdown part, and a few fans actually did say it's the final countdown along with the the song. So a sm- very small but important milestone <laughs> in the history of Ring of Honor. Um, so anyway, after that, after the match, Danielson's and this this show, you know, it's funny. Like I have not hated the show, but this show has been like full of the little of little pet peeves like coming to a head that Ring of Honor we've seen a lot of shows because this is the final one of the night where um after the match we immediately after the finish we see Danielson screaming a promo into one of the handheld cameras except we never hear the promo we only see it far away from the from the you know the hard cam from a distance and we don't hear it and that's because you know again as shane hagenorn has you know talked about in frequent that this is a pet peeve of his on an honorable mention um ring of honor would always take with a hard camera and two ring ring, uh ringside you know handhelds but they only except in very rare special circumstances use the second handheld the second handheld was always just a backup so almost i don't know and i don't know why they did that but they always just used the one hard, uh, the hard camera and the one handheld. Well, just, so just, Brian, just it's, it's easier. It's easier to edit yeah. from two versus one, right? And so, oh yeah, no, that that probably yeah, you're you're right. I imagine. Um, but I was just gonna say, we, this isn't even the first. I forget who it was, but I know that we've seen this at least once or twice before, where a wrestler will cut a promo after a match into a camera, and because it's the wrong one, and and Ring of Honor for, will not, you know, use the second one. You just don't get to see it, and, and it's just annoying and weird, and it's one of those very Ring of Honor things. But um, af- so anyway, we go backstage with Dave Prezak one more time. He's with a very touchy feely Roderick Strong and Jay Charm. They're really all over each other. Dave wants Roddy's reaction to what has been happening between him and Danielson lately. Roddy kind of intimidates Prezak, backs him up, and he says, "You'll see my reaction tomorrow in the ring." You know, this is ultra serious, Matt, because, um, you know, this was real. It was a shoot what happened between Danielson and uh, Strong last time. But finally, we get our usual set of ads for the Ring of Honor Wrestling School merch website, shoot interviews, and we're out. And that is Showdown in Motown. Matt, I thought this might not be the worst show we've seen because it was a decently enjoyable watch. But I feel like in some ways this felt like the most skippable Ring of Honor show we've ever seen. There is not one you've got to go see out of your way to see this match on this card. And not only that, 
we've seen other shows that have been like that, but they usually had something that was at least minorly like historical or, or like important to a storyline. I feel like there is nothing on the show that really is important, even from a storyline thing. Like everything here is a very kind of inconsequential, like holding pattern to set up the big matches that matter via it on the next show or the next few shows. So this is not a show. I think that people would like be tortured by if they watched. There's some things to enjoy, but this might be one of the most skippable shows we've ever covered. Uh, hmm. I agree that it's like not nothing that's really essential or consequential. Um, and I agree that this was definitely a B show that was setting up the next night. Um, I, I think I liked the show a lot more than you did though. Um, I think this was a good, this was a good show. I think this like, I think almost everything on this show was good. Um, like, yeah, nothing was great. Um, but it was solidly entertaining the whole way. I think we've seen several shows that are less uh, worthy of somebody's time than this. Um, I, from a bell to bell point, I think I, I, I agree, but I, I also feel like it's not so good enough. It's also not good enough to go out of your way to see. And there's nothing apart from the wrestling that's notable at all. So it's kind of like it has to live. This is a show that has to live or die on the wrestling and the wrestling is good enough, but not good enough to be like, go out and find this DVD, you know, find a video of this. No, yeah, definitely not that. But like, if you, if you were to watch it, like, I think you didn't, I think if you like ROH, I think you'd enjoy it. Cause like, it's solidly entertaining. It moves at a pretty yeah. brisk pace, good crowd, like good performances. I think it's a pretty good show. Like I, I would, I would qualify this as a pretty good show. Um, just not important, not memorable, and no absolute must see anything. Um, in that I, sense, I, you're right. But I, but I, but I, but I enjoyed this. I, I thought this was better than I expected, better than I remembered, in fact. Um, but yes, it was not. You know, it was not consequential. And you know what? It made for a really good episode of the podcast. I, Matt, I think we did a good job today. And so, and if Trevor is saying something positive about anything that he has done, you know that you could take it to the bank. Um, so don't worry, Gabe. I, don't worry, Gabe. Trevor's doing fine. You have you have my <laughs> word. Now, Trevor, if any if anything bad happens to you, now I'm going to look really bad because I said that. So now oh, you ha- now you have to stick to it. Just for oh, me. Oh Jesus, Jesus Christ! So um, I think we deserve some plugs. Uh, um, if you want to contact us, we are through the years at gmail.com. As always, that's T H R O H to spell through. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs forum on Twitter. I I am at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor MGF. And, and, and you can listen to us on uh, on all of the your favorite podcast apps, even Spotify, you know, if you're if you want to be canceled. Um and uh, <laughs> and YouTube if you want to be a deep vein from YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, our next show, we will be covering the, the second half of this double shot weekend, the bigger show, Vendetta. The much bigger, including just the size of the match, uh, Gen Next versus Embassy Tag. We get a the Daniels um, Joe singles match that was set up here, and the big match we get the Roderick Strong Brian Danielson match that you remember being really great, and that since my memory's so bad, everything's new to me. But I loved their first one, so I am really excited to revisit this one. It should be a really good show, and uh, this was a really good show. So until next time. Have a good time. Have a great time.